You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was Mike Fay, former Marine combat artist. Um, so much to talk about with Mike. First, that he was referred to me um, as one of the legends of the Marine Corps combat arts program. And I was also told that he really is a great talker, is a great interview, you know, really interesting guy. I would really enjoy talking to him. So all of our interviews are done on Zoom. And so when I called him on Zoom, we set up an interview, called down, and we started talking. And I loved where the conversation was going. And then the fact that he was in his basement in Pennsylvania uh, and I don't know, the connection just sucked. And we tried to push through it for about 15 or 20 minutes. We just couldn't. And I was like, shit. I was like, it just feels like a shame to write him off as an interview because, you know, of crappy internet connection. And I was like, and so I told him, I was like, hey, I'll come down to Pennsylvania and interview you. And then, uh, you know, we got super busy at Vet Rep. There was one thing after another after another. <clears throat> and by the time I, by the time I went down, I made the tactical mistake of scheduling it on the day that I was teaching a class back in New York that night. So I had a very, not a very limited window, but a limited window. There, there had to be a defined endpoint. I couldn't just space out and enjoy the conversation. And of course, that was the wrong thing to do and with the wrong guest to do it. <clears throat> because Mike, um, <laughs> I'll just say, I, <laughs> I ask every interview guest, you know, hey, what are the left and right limits of what you feel comfortable talking about? Is there anything you don't want me to mention, don't want me to talk about? And Mike told me the thing that he didn't want to talk about. And as I said, you know, what, you know, is there anything you don't want me to talk about? He's like, yeah, I don't think we should talk about this. And I was like, okay. He's like, because this is what happened. <laughs> and then he went on like a 25-minute uh, conversation about the thing he didn't want to talk about. And obviously this wasn't on air, but it just, it, we were just, I was like, oh, he's a talker and I'm not going to have enough time to capture him fully in one interview. So as I told Mike, this is going to have to be part one. It has to be because we don't close the loop on nearly as many subjects that he brings up as I would like have liked. And, and at the same time, I also like, you know, I, I, was not going to limit where he was going, the rabbit holes he was going down and the tangents he would go on. They're, they're great. They're interesting. Uh, is such a colorful and interesting and knowledgeable dude. And it, it's just a shame. We didn't have enough time to sit there and properly do a three hour interview the way we should have. Um, but to be continued, um, Mike, you know, was a Marine, uh, enlisted Marine. He was a, um, infantryman, a kind of entered the military in that post Vietnam, uh, period. And then you will hear how 
all the different iterations of his Marine career until he ended up in the combat art program um, and deployed, I forget what he said, seven, nine times in the GWAT. So anyway, just a super interesting guy with a very interesting perspective and <clears throat> so much more that we have to cover with him uh, in the future. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I am the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Mike Fay. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate the chance to uh, talk. Yeah, I mean, this is, so, full disclosure, this is the first time I've done an in-person podcast. You're it. And it's because of our our aborted interview before, because I was like, we got off on such a great start, and I could not hear anything you were saying. It was driving me nuts. I was like, I'll go to Pennsylvania. I got to go see him, because I don't want to let that die. Yeah, Chris, and and now that you're here and you see where I live, you understand that uh, we're... uh we're out here. Well, it is funny because you and I, what we liked, I think, or what I was enjoying when we were talking was because we were talking about Pennsylvania. Sure. And it's like now driving out here, I want to talk even more about Pennsylvania and its effect on you because I'm like, it's gorgeous where you live. And we were talking about you know, the area and the aquifers mm-hmm. and the Appalachian Trail being nearby and all. Um, are you from this part of Pennsylvania originally? Yes and no. Okay. The 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 no part is I grew up in Allentown, which is all the way, uh, you know, the Billy Joel song, um, literally, um, over in uh, Lehigh County. Okay. Um, almost to the, almost to Jersey. Okay. Um, so Allentown is sort of, uh, it's just the northern burbs of Philadelphia, for you know, every, okay. people come okay. to yeah. Philly down um, the Pennsylvania State Turnpike, Northeast Extension. So um, I grew up in Allentown. And uh, but my mom's family, although my mom did not grow up in Lebanon, my mom's mother and father were from here, from Lebanon County. Okay. My grandmother, uh, who I called Nana, was a uh, uh, a Moravian. I don't know what that is. Uh, Moravians are, um, you know, one of those uh, Anabaptist sects here. Mm. We have Mennonites. Okay. We have we have uh, obviously the Amish. Sure. Uh, there's another group called Schwenkfelders. Okay. There are. Do you have Bruderhof down here? Are there Bruderhof? No, I've never heard of Bruderhof. Okay. All right. Um, we also have um, uh, Dunkard Brethren. So wow. all these Anabaptists, and all Anabaptists mm. means you only get baptized as a consenting adult. They don't baptize babies or children. That's the only common denominator between them all. Yes, they're Anabaptists. And, and okay. a lot of them originated from, uh, actually from Switzerland and not from Germany. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well. Okay. Um, do they all do they all have the same aesthetic though? Do they all do no no the, no, okay. no no right. no 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 they're all there's varying degrees okay and when you live here you realize it's a it's a lot of subtlety no cookie cutter stereotypes about mm, mm-hmm. any of them mm-hmm. you know the Amish are the Amish gotcha gotcha Mennonites have shades of gray you have what they call old order Mennonites which are other than the color of their buggies are virtually indistinguishable. From the Amish. Okay. Then you have modern Mennonites. They have like, a, I think it's 10,000 villages. There's a there's a town near here called Ephrata where they have their headquarters. Um, the people we bought the house from here in Pennsylvania were Mennonite. You would never know. Wow. 
Okay. In the middle of the Mennonites, which you see mostly <clears throat> here, you have what they call black bumper Mennonites. So what does that mean? It means the men wear pork pie hats. Uh-huh. Uh, they almost universally wear plaid shirts buttoned all the way up. Okay. The women uh, go to like uh, the different uh, fabric stores like Joann's and just buy whatever's on sale. And probably in, in New York City, they would be considered fashionistas because you got plaids with prints and uh, everything going on. Um, like the Amish, they do wear sort of a little, the women wear a little cap over their hair. Okay. It's round. The Amish caps that, the, that they wear are heart-shaped. But the black reason they're called black bumper Mennonite is because all their cars have black bumpers. They always have. So they're not ostentatious. Uh, <laughs> do they all – this is completely yeah. – it might be a misperception. Is there a degree of pacifism that runs through the Anabaptist community? That's well, always yes. my perception. All, all, all the Anabaptists, including the Moravians, mm -hmm. are, are pacifists. So that was sort of the mindset that you were – No, no. Oh, I mean, you're around it a little, oh. at least a little bit, right? No, not really. Okay, all not right. Really? Okay. Uh, my, my, my. As, as an aside, my grandmother, who I called Nana, uh, her maiden name was Felty, which you're not going to find anywhere else in America, but you're going to find it here in Lebanon County. Um, she, at 16 years old, ran off and joined uh, Ziegfeld Follies, and in a in a uh, in an acrobatic bicycle act. She was gone five years. Nobody knew where she was. She felt guilty because she was very close to her mother. She didn't get along with her father. She came home at 21 with beautiful clothes and a nice big, big Sheltie dog. It was almost like her, what they call rumspringer. Yeah. Her wilding. Yeah. She never got a driver's license. <clears throat> she met my grandfather, had children, and that was it. She never, wow. whatever. Um, but as far as like political pacifism, no, not at all. I mean, I was raised Lutheran. Okay, my, all right. my grandfather, who I called Pop, uh, was 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 Lutheran. So we we you know basically okay. Catholic light. So who were you as a kid then? What was your interest? What was your driving inspiration? What what got you up in the morning as a kid? I mean, besides having to go to school, were you, was it sports? Was it the environment? Was it the nature around you? What, what who I was were art? You? Was drawing? Was it? Oh really? yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. <clears throat> I mean, as my parents said, you know, as far back as I remember, I'm drawn. Wow. And uh, and military theme stuff. Always military theme right. stuff. In fact, my uh, my master's thesis, which in 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 a large part was based on myself, although it was uh, which uh, it's a novel. I'm still writing a fictional character. Wow. Uh, was called the Boy Who Drew Soldiers. Now I got that from there's an old Japanese tale called the Boy Who Drew Cats. Um, so I was called. So I decided to do the Boy Who Drew Soldiers. So. Um, I can remember, uh, you know, being a, a baby boomer, you started seeing like Life magazine articles about World War II. You had Walter Cronkite, you yeah. know, his television show, The yeah. 20th Century, with right. Walter Cronkite. <laughs> right, right. You know, and I watched that, and my dad had served in World War II as a Marine, Guadalcanal, New Britain campaign. Oh, really? Had been wounded. Um, he was involved in the initial <clears throat> atomic bomb tests. I still have his ID card from that, uh, Operation Crossroads. Um, he died from a, a type of cancer that was directly linked to being involved with the, the atomic bomb tests. Um, his oldest brother, my Uncle Frank, uh, was in the Army Rangers and got the Silver Star. Um, you know, my my mom's sister's husband, who I was very close to, my Uncle Chuck, he was in the Army, fought in the Hurtigan Forest, uh, Was uh, wrote a whole book about 
being wounded and wow. he was on point with two other guys thought they were both dead they got you know hit with machine gun fire so this wasn't like so, an academic or like boyhood new, fascination this was coming from family connection well yeah you know how do you explain it i'm, I'm a bit of a new agey guy but um and all the books the, the sort of the world war ii art books started coming out because uh, in, in yeah. world war ii you had um all the branches had active quote-unquote uh combat art programs the british and the french etc they tried they tend to call it war art or war artists here in the u.s they chose the term combat artists you know combat photographers combat right. journalists right. things like that and uh and historical books so you know i can tell you the, the first painting artwork that i tried to copy over and over and over again was uh by a gentleman named um I'm going to draw a blank here. It was N.C. Wyeth's uh, mentor. It'll come mm. to me. But it's, uh, it's the British soldiers attacking up Breed's Hill. And uh, the lines of soldiers, their backpacks, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just was fascinated with, you know. And then, I you know, I tried to copy like uh, 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 Prince Valiant, you know, the sort of the, um, you know, the stuff from, uh, you know, medieval times. Yeah. And uh, was it artistic for you, or was it the story itself? Was there? Oh, I think of, all of the above. Okay, I, I mean, at right. that age, you have no idea. I'm talking, yeah. I'm talking four and five years old. I was wow. just filling up paper after paper. And it was it was copying pictures. Well, trying to. Okay. Trying yeah, to. yeah. And um, uh, Howard Pyle. That's who it was. It did. Oh, paper. Yeah, Howard Pyle yeah. with the Golden Age of Illustrators. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting question because I, I eventually got my master's in illustration. And people say, you know, what is the difference between illustration and fine art? Well, illustration, two things. One, it's always tied with story. Doesn't mean fine art isn't. It's always tied to story, to a narrative, yeah. narrative content. Um, the other thing about illustration that's less obvious is illustrators are always concerned about what it will look like reproduced. Fine artists are interested in what it will look like hanging on a wall or in a museum. Illustrators know the process so whatever mistakes like illustrate like i and i know i got enough attention but uh one of the things that i got to do was have an exhibit at the uh, uh farnsworth museum in wyeth center mm. in rock rock uh, rock rockport maine okay yeah rockland maine and uh i think it's rockland maine and uh i got to go behind the scenes to see the archives particularly they have nc wyeth and Howard Pyle stuff, big collection, wow. and get to see um, all the use of whiteout what we, or, or white gouache to, to take out areas they didn't like. Really? So seeing them in person, they were all, because, you know, the art director would say, oh, I don't like, take this out. So they would just put white gouache over it and put some. So they're, but wow. in, in their photo, whatever the process, the, photo, the lithography <clears throat> they had back then, all those defects would disappear gone so that was a big revelation that's interesting but uh, i will tell you that when i was five years old my um i had a very good friend and she's still alive her name is mitzi dennett's and she was an elementary art school teacher in a nearby school district parkland school district and i guess my parents had shown them my artwork what i was doing mm. and mitzi told them it's like he's got it he's he's got that thing yeah yeah, um, I will tell you, my parents were not supportive of that. God bless them. Really? Oh, no. This is this is. The what, did they, what did they want you to be? Uh, anything but an artist. <laughs> because of the money. 
and the supportability. Well, you know, this is the generation that you know was uh, you know saw the movies with the. Uh, you know, uh, about, you know, uh, you know, Vincent van Gogh, uh, cutting off his ear and, uh, right. uh, Toulouse Lautrec, you know, uh, you know, losing his mind on absinthe and, right. and dying. So they right. really, to them art, because they didn't really grow up with art like we did. What, what were so they, they, what did, what did they do? What'd your parents do? What was, was their background? My mom was a school nurse. Okay. Um, she was also an operating room nurse, but she ended up retiring as a school nurse. My dad was my brother Doug and I. I have three two brothers, but my my brother Doug and I are pretty close. We're only about two and a half years apart, and I, I think they they really weren't talking about PTSD uh, and, and, and stuff. Yeah. So my father was I, I know every kid might say this was was a genius. His memory was incredible. He had so uh -huh. many friends. He was the life of the party. Hmm. And he was a salesman. He was never, he did two years of college, met my mom, mm. fell in love, and that was that. So he never finished college. Very well read. In fact, I still, he used to subscribe to Time Life books. He used to send mm. out like a couple yeah. books a month. And he, he, so he was extremely well read. Um, he was uh, uh, the youngest son of an Irish Catholic family. Mm. The plan was for him to be a priest. And uh, he was sent to the Jesuit high school. And as my father said to me, he said, you know, Mike, there was a redheaded girl down the street <laughs> and I knew I would never be able to be a priest. So when he graduated yeah. high school, he, in, at 18, he ran off and <clears throat> joined the Civilian Conservation Corps mm. out mm -hmm. of Boston. He, so he was just a city kid. Yeah. Irish Catholic city kid. And uh, from, a, from a legacy of his father's, his grandfather's uncles were all laborers. Because as my dad said, the Boston papers at the end of every one ad said N-I-N-A. No Irish or you know what's apply. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So he yeah. Said it was until after World War II, wow. he goes, remember, we Irish were the you know what's a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And uh, so and then he got, he got recruited very shortly after out of a civilian conservation corps camp in Montana to go in the Marine Corps. He said there were a couple hundred young men there working, and the Marine recruiters came up from Denver, wow. and they basically said, uh, "You and you, we're you know." So when you're an artist as a kid, I get that he wouldn't necessarily have the framework to understand that. Did you? How did you interpret their lack of enthusiasm for your art career? Well, they were they were they were uh, depression era kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was like. They're thinking about viability. Yeah, they're right? thinking yeah. economics. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and probably you know that, uh, you know that the artistic sort of thing was uh, was a path to. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, unbeknownst did, to me, they're probably like we you know jazz musicians all smoke marijuana. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, it, you know, it's they they just did not want that path. I mean, but what did that do to you? Did it inhibit you? Did it make you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's something. Even I've you know, been in therapy. For any number of, you know, mm. after nine combat tours, you're going to you know, have some issues. The brain sort of tends to want to rewire itself. And once it does, it doesn't want to go back. Right. Um, and so, um, I mean, I can tell you, even at 70, uh, which I'm almost 70, that... Um, Don't look it. Well, my, you know, my mom just turned 94. Wow. And her sister's going to turn 98. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, so there's wow. there's good genes as long as I take care of myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that... Uh, I mean, it's, and, and I'm not the only one. I mean, many artists deal with that, like, am I good enough? Because if there's one thing I heard from my first wife and from uh, 
my parents was, ah, do you really think you're that good? And this is after your parents had heard. Oh, yeah. Hey, he's got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still didn't believe well, it. Well, it would be like the school psychologist as a friend and says, oh, by the way, I think your son's gay. You know. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, 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 no. That's not our plan. You know, we want grandchildren. Wow. I mean, seriously, yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, I think they would have been happier if I said I wanted to be a priest. Okay, that's there's that's job security in that. You'll you'll be okay. Yeah. So what did that make you do when they when they kind of dampened your enthusiasm for art? Did you just do it on the down low or yes, did you start did. to shift your targets? I, I, I did and I like I said, I um I would do I where can I go with this? <laughs> I uh well for instance I wanted to go to art school out of out of college, out of high school. Mm. And I was my my I was my class salutatorian, you know? And uh, I was the art club president, and I was the art kid. I mean, I'm, my art teacher's still alive. I don't know how many awards I got because she would just let me. I mean, I still have bad dreams about my senior year in high school that I got tests and paper to write because I've just spent the whole year in the art room doing art and, and blown everything off. And now it's literally the night before graduation, and I got term papers and math tests to take, wow. and I have no idea. I haven't studied German for, you know. And I got all this over my head. And I, I sometimes, I mean, it hasn't happened lately, but there were times I woke up and I'd have to l- virtually say out loud to myself, Mike, you have a master's degree. <laughs> no one is coming for it, right? Um, but you know, And you like, still made salutarian. Huh? So you still did really well in school despite oh, yeah. that. Yeah, and they, well, the uh, the art teacher would just take the stuff. It would disappear from my little cubby or whatever. And, and, wow. and she would submit it and I'd get Hallmark card awards and different stuff and um, but you know, it's, and I wanted to go to art school and my parents said, if you go to art school, we will not pay for it because okay. I'm looking at, you know, schools in New York city because I'm sure. in Allentown. So I'm just like, you know, hour down, yeah, yeah. hour away from uh, Holland tunnel or yeah, essentially. So, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, <clears throat> art students league or, uh, Pratt, yeah. you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or Janice went FIT. I mean, there's all kinds of art schools. Uh, they're not cheap. No, they're not. You no, know, even back yeah. then, like I look at look at you know the the, the Minneapolis mm. College of Art and Design, yeah, Savannah College of Art and Design. You know, they were sort of like the Ivy League of art schools. They were yeah. not cheap. Yeah, Philadelphia College of Art. Holy crap. Yeah. Um, they're like, we will not pay for it. So I I went off to college as a forestry major. Wow. Because I thought, well, I'll live in the woods at the top of some tower somewhere, and uh, <laughs> and then I'll you know I, I can do art or something. You know, I'll figure it out. Did, was nature a big part of your art, even from the early ages, or was it always military themed and it was subject matter both. tied to story? Okay. Both. both. Right. I'm, 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 a, I'm a. Well, we get into a big discussion about different types of artwork. I am, I am not a realist. I'm a naturalist. There's, there's a, there's a, a slight difference. What's the difference? Well, a realist, probably the best example of realist would be like, um, uh, photorealism. Okay. You, you really want to mimic exactly what you see in front of you. Okay. A naturalist takes what's in front of them and interprets it. So yes. they might use impressionism, uh, but they don't try to copy it per se. Yep. And that's called a naturalist. Okay. As opposed to a realist. I mean, my artwork is still realistic. Right, right. But it's, it's tried to inform with more emotional content in terms of the, the shaping of of objects, the color choices. Well, and it's more individual too, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, not, you know, so, um, so I was always fascinated by both landscape painting mm. and figurative painting. 
and uh, and, I, and and when I was in when I was in elementary school and then also in high school, um, I would get uh, scholarships. There was a local art school in Allentown um, uh, that was run by a a, a semi major Pennsylvania impressionist named Walter Baum, and it was called the Baum Art School, B A U M. And Baum was uh, although he lived in Allentown, worked in Allentown, he was part of the uh, the uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Impressionist School out of New Hope, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, the big museum for that is the uh, uh, the Mitchner Museum in Doylestown. Okay. And I actually had a one-man show at the Mitchner Museum in Doylestown because when I approached him with my art and I said, you know, I'm a, I was a student. I mean, I had Walter Baum as a kid. They were like, well, we like that connection. Yeah. Um, and so, the, you know, and and Walter was, Mr. Baum was, a, he, he was a, uh, he was not a figurative painter. He was strictly landscape. That was his thing, landscape. You know, Pennsylvania yep. highways and byways, just yep. like what I see out here that resonates with me here in, in, in Lebanon yeah. County and Lancaster County. Yeah. So it was both. But um, uh, but can I just say, go you ahead. were inspired. I mean, this is what we were talking about in our aborted interview, right? I mean, you're a very partisan Pennsylvanian when it comes to your inspiration, it seems like. Like, it would make sense that the bomb school would, would resonate with you, that the landscapes that turned sure. him on are the same ones that are turning you on, right? Well, and also, I mean, you know, I mean, my father, back to a little bit my dad, he, he essentially raised us Unitarians. Mm-hmm. He was a fallen Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were his middle brother was a devout path, my uncle Gene, and we were stopped at the cathedral doors by him when we were going to go attend my father's mother, my Gamsey's funeral, because my uncle Eugene said, "You've been excommunicated, Dick. You can't come into this church with your family." And my dad said, "Had some." I remember I'm like nine years old, and my dad's like, uh, "How would you like me to freaking knock all your teeth out right now?" You know. Uh, wow. So. Wow. Uh, I think probably the only reason I can only theorize that we were not raised Unitarian, because there was a Unitarian fellowship in Bethlehem right nearby, was that the Unitarians were the Brahmins, the the, <laughs> the Boston Brahmins who kept the Irish in their place. You know, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little bit of class so I think, but stuff I, but, that goes but into I that. Was, yeah. I, w- I was conscious of these things. And, you know, Pennsylvania being the Keystone State, you really – and growing up in Allentown and having relatives out here in Lebanon County, um, you know, I was on the cusp of a lot of stuff. So what's it, one of the many things that's, that's striking me now hearing all this, you have an immense amount of historical, socio-political, cultural knowledge, background stories, yeah. data points, et cetera. Like you've referenced and gone on tangents on a bunch of different things. You should say that I, when my wife, my wife was sitting here and she'd be rolling her eyes because <laughs> she's utterly black and white thinking, like get to the point. Do you like this painting, Michael? Well, the reason, no, no, no. Yes or no. No, but it's, it's great. But it, what it makes me think is then when it comes to your art, because your art, one could say, well, look, you're painting things that are, as you said, natural, you know, that you're, you're, it's not, um, you're not doing abstract, you know, it's, it's, so it makes me wonder where does that come out in your work? Where does this love of so many different subjects, appreciation of so many different subjects, do you find that when you're painting a landscape, there is something to it where you're like, look, this is my, this is where I can access my love of Pennsylvania or my love of my appreciation 
of the fact that we weren't raised in inner city Boston. We were raised out here. Like, how does that leak out? Because I have a hard time thinking that somebody that's that interested in so many different subjects would utterly divorce it from your work. So I know that has to have some outlet, doesn't it? Well, Chris, if you were writing my biography, you you, you probably would, would be able to do that. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. when you're, I mean, it's, you know, how do you, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I know I, you, you might analyze not have consciously yourself, thought but of I, it. I mean, the way that I'm talking to you now, I uh, I have received both accolades and criticism. Yeah. You know, because it, it can come across as, wow, this is really interesting, or boy, this person is really friggin' full of themselves. Because I'm I'm Irish, huh. and let me let me just say one of the things yeah. about being Irish is uh, in fact there's a there's a Irish female rock group. I'm trying to think what they're called, but uh, uh, they they come to the Celtic Festival here. Um, they're from Northern Ireland, but one time the one of the girls goes, she goes, "There's only one thing the Irish are afraid of: silence." <laughs> Because her and her sister, one of, there's four sisters, but two of them are always bantering back. She says, I'm so sorry, but there's only one thing the Irish are afraid of. That's silence. But, uh, you know, one of the things that that I got exposed to, it, I went back to Penn State, and I did get my degree in art ed. And I, t- I took a philosophy of aesthetics class, which was like a professor at Sagawa, little little gay Japanese guy, unbelievable mm. guy. And one thing I got exposed to was Jung, Mm, who's mm-hmm. more than a psychologist, the you know, archetypical thing. And one of the things Jung talked about was he called the tension of opposites, mm. which he called the yep. diastole, D-I-A-S-T-O-L-E. And the, he said, as long as you stay in the tension of opposites, you, 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 you will tend to move towards what he called individuation. Mm. You know, so you to be your own person, have your mm. own mm-hmm. sort of view of the world. The opposite of that, he called the retrogressive restoration of the persona. That means when you sort of say, you know what, I was really good, successful at being, you know, I was a hippie. I was, an old, I was a hippie, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. six and a half fist ponytail. My mom's friends wanted to have me cut it off. And, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, women would have what they called a fall, like a fake ponytail they pin into their hair. You know, so I had this glorious head of black, thick hair. And they're like, Michael, your hair is so beautiful. I'll pay you for that to make a fall. <laughs> um, but I think when I think about myself, um, it's the tension of opposites. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, I grew up with a father who was extremely intelligent and no college degree and had no interest other than to take us on hikes in nature, mm. to take us to the Philadelphia Art Museum all the time. To, to, to do all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, he, I mean, he's the guy that exposed me to, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings books. He goes, you need to read these, you know, and things like that. Yet a guy who, you know, when he, when he passed away, he was just a, a manager of a small hardware store, you know, and a, a gentleman who, uh, who could sing like an Irish tenor. I mean, as a kid going to basketball, I had a, my middle brother was a star basketball player, big man on campus in high mm-hmm. school. I still think he has the state record for rebounds in a championship game. And my dad would stand there and be belting out the national anthem. Today, it would be on a YouTube video and it would go viral. Mm. Mm Because people would, everybody would literally stop and look. And he would be sweating and belting out the Star Spangled Banner like, oh my God. And of course, being a hippie at the time, I'm like, oh my God. Don't look, why stop? (laughs) 
Um, so, do you do you feel he was un, he had unrequited talent that his talent? Oh yes, oh not, absolutely. Yeah. But his his attitude always was. He he would say, uh, and it wasn't until years later I read it and I found out what it meant. He always said, "I've been to Kansas City twice and seen the elephant." You know what that is? No. That's the Civil War slang for being wounded. Been to Kansas City and I've seen the elephant. That was the Civil War slang for I was wounded in combat. Okay. So he was wounded on Guadalcanal and then really messed up on New Britain. Okay. He was just glad to be alive because he was in the regular Marine Corps when the war started. And because of his Jesuit education, mm-hmm. knowing some Latin and some French and mm-hmm. could, you know, could quote Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. um, they made him an officer. Wow. Because, you know, the Marine Corps went from virtually having a little bit less yeah. than one division yeah. to having six divisions. So all the USMC guys were all made officers and sergeant majors. And, you know, you could be the biggest shite bird. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you're going to be a sergeant major yeah. because this new battalion needs guys that were, you know, have been in at least a little bit when the war started. And so my dad was very conscious of the fact that of the 240 guys he went overseas with, with uh, – Gulf Company, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. At the end of the war, as far as I knew, 12 were still alive. Wow. You know, because of the attrition. Wow. You know, so he was just glad to meet somebody, fall in love, and have kids, have a job, not be having the life that his father, grandfathers, uncles all had as laborers. I mean, I've, I've done genealogy research. Yeah. And I can find the, the, the censuses, and they're all listed laborers that's it do you so, think that's why he also wanted to expose you to art at a young age and take and take you into the museums and and have you read literature that he was like we've got i've gotten to this point you got to move the can kick the can even I, further I, I don't i never got to ask him that he died rather young uh from cancer so hmm. um yeah and these are those are great questions i mean you know yeah right if i could i would right right, you right, know, right or i say you know why did you just not you know but he just didn't have that fire in his gut. Yeah, yeah. You know, because his, to him, it was all gravy. It's like, yeah, it's all yeah. gravy. It's yeah. like, I got a house, I got a wife, I got three kids. I got income. You know, it's like, I, I'm... I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. You know, compared to generations before me, pff, I'm in high cotton, baby. So what propelled you into the Marines as a hippie, as going to college? Alcohol. Awesome. Okay. No, in all, in all yeah. honesty, I... All right. uh, I worked at a summer camp in the Poconos for seven summers. Okay. As a cook. Started off as a kitchen boy. Two summers as a kitchen boy. Third summer, they may be a third cook. With I, I sliced a lot of onions and lettuce and tomatoes and cold cuts and mixed up a lot of pancake batter. Um, and then I eventually became a cook at okay. a very young age. Um, at 17 years old, the summer after my senior year of high school, I was like, had my own kitchen. I'd yet to even turn 18. Did you like it? I loved it. Okay. Well, I met a young lady. Uh-huh. Her name will be on my lips on my deathbed. <laughs> All right? Um, and we went together for about three years. We were engaged. And uh, the better the college I got into, because I was at Penn State, changed my major to art. From forestry? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I went away to forestry. Yeah, even right. my Even my, my, my uh, advisor was like, what are you doing in forestry? And Penn State at that time was so inexpensive. I said, you know, let me major in art, you know. And your parents would still pay for it? No, I ended up paying for it. Okay. Yeah, my parents didn't pay one dime for my education. Okay. Well, Penn State in 1971, the entire year, cost you $1,845. Wow. 
even with inflation. Yeah, what is that with inflation? I was thinking. Not, it still is not. It was like I could pay for it with my summer job money. Wow. And have a part-time job during the wow. year. Wow, okay. You know, All right. And, and it was virtually no problem. And take out a little student. So it was really just a matter of appeasing your parents and saying, even though I'm paying for it, right. I'll do forestry. And then at a certain point, okay, enough with the forestry. Well, I had to come up with At that time, I was like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? So. Okay. And they were like, okay. You know. <laughs> um, and then I, uh, I transferred to the Philadelphia College of Art. And then, because I finally said, you know, I got to get serious about this. Um, and then I transferred. I had a professor at the Philadelphia College of Art. I wish, wish I could remember his name. He was an African-American gentleman who said, you don't belong here. You belong at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Now, today, it's called the University of the Arts. Okay. Because back then, you could have, you would have your uh, studio classes at the Philadelphia College of Art. University of Pennsylvania professors would come down and do your academic classes. Oh, wow. And maybe you might have a studio class later on as a senior down at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. So this professor of mine said, because I was doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of drinking, believe me, heavy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I was producing a lot of art in back in my apartment. So one of my professors came by one day and he was like, wow, he goes, you don't, you, be, you don't belong at Philadelphia College of Art. You belong at the Pennsylvania Academy. So I got into the Pennsylvania Academy like mid-semester. I went from being a freshman to being a last term sophomore because the dean said, oh my gosh, mm. you're, um, and I barely went to a class because I'm Irish. I have the Irish flu. Gotcha. All right? Yep. And the lovely young lady uh, decided that perhaps I was a dead end. And so we split, sort of had a friends with benefit thing over the summer. And then finally, uh, you're talking about deathbed remembering. And finally, um, uh, in the fall of 74, she didn't show up for a rendezvous and she wrote me a letter and she said, Michael, at the end of it, she, and she let her detailed like, you know, you have so much potential and you're just not doing a thing with it. You know, you just, wow. you know, whatever. Cause I'm now I'm out of college and I'm working as a cook in a restaurant, which means free booze. That was back in the day when cooks mm. were in the back smoking cigarettes, yeah, 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 sweating right. into your food. Right. And right. Uh, at about eight o'clock, the chef would start having beers uh, delivered right. from the bar, you know? Oh wait, you're Sorry, I'm just going to make one note. You're going to drive my producer nuts because he's going to edit that sound out. No, you're good. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and so, um, so she wrote me a letter, and you know, and, and it really changed everything because she was just very upfront. And she ended the letter by saying, "Michael, I will always love you. I just can't face it. I think I'll just marry some rich older guy." She said that in the letter, yeah. And she did marry two rich older guys. One was a lawyer. One was a doctor. And at first, I was like, well, what the heck? But it really ate at me. Yeah. So now I'm just drinking nonstop. And finally, I'm, it's in like May of 1975. I'm in this restaurant. I'm the head cook. I wouldn't call myself a chef. I was working off mm -hmm. somebody else's recipes in Allentown called the King George Inn. And this is, uh, you know, this is the era of what's your sign, Batgammon. Right, right, right. And, uh, thank God you're, I'm a country boy, you know, and, and uh, at bars and... Uh, and so, you know, I basically drank for free after work. Yeah, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 my drug of choice was triple rum and Cokes. So that's where it's like rum, and you sort of take the cap from the Coke bottle and wave it over the top. <laughs> and, uh, and my capacity for drinking was, from the first time I ever got drunk, was legendary. Yeah. In high school. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. 
I wasn't even a pot smoker. I go to parties like smoke all the pot you want. That leaves more for me in the beer, you know, or sangria, whatever you know. So um, Gerald Ford came on the television and said the U.S. Marines have taken back the SS Mayaguez. Now I had almost enlisted twice, and my dad talked me out of it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm still living at home. You know, I'm talking. You know, failure to launch here. When did you first try to enlist? Well, it was probably right after with the girl. Okay. So 75-ish. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Vietnam is over now. Well, it had just ended. Because May 75, Vietnam oh, yeah. ends, right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my platoon, we graduated in boot camp. We were the first uh, platoons that didn't get the Firewatch ribbon. Everybody before us like wow. graduated the Firewatch ribbon and a shooting yep. badge. Yeah. And we were like, oh, no ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and oh, then- wait, wait, sorry. Before, I just want to drill on this. Yeah. When you had tried to enlist before, it had all been post- this breakup. From oh the yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it was very right. dramatic. You know, I'm Irish. I'm artist. Yeah. You know, I'm all the things my parents were afraid of. Seriously. I'm <laughs> right. all the things my parents right. are afraid of. He's drunk. He's working in a kitchen. He's mooning over this girl. <laughs> oh my God. And, um, and doing nothing with his life. And right. I'm sure because I was in my high school class, Sally Thorne. I can show you my yearbook. There's a picture of the, you know, the Val Victorian here and a picture of me, you know, <laughs> next to him you know we spoke at our high school graduations and uh um uh so where am i going with this so um so when you're about to enl- so now so you're finally when, doing no, it to, and yeah. to show you the drama it's like yeah. i actually looked into enlisting in the french foreign legion because they had a recruiting course in new york this is pre-internet and everything yep. else. and I, I was honest with myself i said you know what there's no freaking way i'm gonna learn french i do not have that gene I do not, I do not have that gene, right? So my dad had been a Marine. I had a much older cousin had been a Marine in Vietnam. You know, I grew up with, you know, my generation, a clear distinction of each service. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife hates us, but I always joke, you know what their secret recruiting slogan of the army is? The army, when your mom will let you join the Marines. (laughs) (laughs) Because Marines hear all the time from people that have never been in the service, I hate to say it, guys have been in the army going, and even my my wife, when we first met, she said, you know, I almost joined the Marines. I was working on the Marine recruit, but they couldn't guarantee me an MOS. And uh, and you know what I'm talking about. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. yeah, Marines hear it all the time. It's like, oh, I almost joined the Marines. Everybody almost joined the Marines. Yeah. Everybody almost joined the Marines. But so I said, you know, what's the next best thing? You know, if you really want to have something short of of a prefrontal lobotomy, you know, who will do that? And so my generation was... It's the Marines. You know, Paris Island is just like, it's like there's Devil's Island that the French send their prisoners to. Yeah. And then there's there's Paris Island. And it's this legendary mythic place that you're going to go to. Time will suspend itself. <laughs> you will come out of there utterly transformed. That's the big selling point of the Marine Corps. Okay. And yeah. so- but Vietnam wasn't weighing in your mind, like the fact Not that, at all. like that post-Vietnam lull and the dip and enthusiasm for the military, that didn't hit with you. Okay. No, no, no. But it, it, it sort of plays a part in my story. So okay. now, join the Marines, go to Paris Island. Uh, my mind is immediately blown, you know, because it's not the boot camp my dad went through in 1938, you know. In what way? Better, worse, well, tougher? Well, worse in terms of the head shaving and okay. the harassment and- the craziness. I mean, the, it was worse than the 1930s. I thought in oh, the 1930s absolutely. they were oh, yeah, barbarians. Yeah, yeah. No, no, okay. No, oh, wow. No, no, no. All right. Much. Because my drill instructors were all Vietnam vets and they were still, summer of 75, they were still training us to fight Luke de Gook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah we were yeah. still laying in bed 
saying goodnight chesty puller and kill communists <laughs> you know so you know it was still okay very much that that was what was going on and wait just one more sidebar before you continue yeah. on why didn't your why did your dad talk you out of it did he think because it's you or because it's the marine corps what did he have a problem with probably both okay he just it, thought it wasn't like, a good this mix is, well okay. it's probably the final nail in the coffin he's in the what's michael doing he's in the marines what <laughs> you know yeah and, yeah um and I think part of me was like, I, I knew, I mean, I had friends that when they found out I was in the Marines, they were like, buy a lottery ticket or get ready for Armageddon because this is, doesn't, this is like, yeah, who? Yeah. Okay. You know, who, what? Faye went in the Marines? Are you freaking kidding me? Cognitive dissonance. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, and, yeah. and part of me wanted that drama. Believe me. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, I mean, I made the decision drunk and went to the recruiter the next day hungover. Only the Irish are capable of that thought process. <laughs> Is she still in your mind? Oh, absolutely. This whole time, right? Yeah. So following a great legacy. Still in my mind today. Some, some yeah, things yeah. get wired into you. You know, yeah, it's just like, yep. um, you know, I mean, what she did, essentially she said, I, I I, fell out of like with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And anybody has been in a long-term relationship, that's what matters because you're going to fall out of quote unquote love. Right. Biology makes that freaking easy as hell. Right. Right. But like which means we're going to, you know, ebb and flow is a whole nother thing. Whole nother thing. I mean, I'm very married to a combat vet, has as much trigger time as I have. Mm -hmm. And if she was here, I'd say, Janice, what are the two things you and I share? She goes, well, we both love Michael and meds. (laughs) (laughs) That's our little shtick. That's funny. And so, um, so I went into Marines and, uh, you know, I was sober through boot camp, obviously, and I, I got caught by the drill instructors doing sketches of them, caricatures. I still we have what's called the Little Red Monster, which is this little ES essential subjects book. Okay. That it was it was it, it was we called Little Red Monster. It had this like red cover, had notebook paper in it, and and you know all the stats about you know M sixteen. Oh right, right, yeah. How to dig a fire hole, yeah. and use a grenade, etc. Basic map reading, and you'd fold it up. And you'd be able to get it in your back pocket. Right. You know. So I'm doing caricatures of the drill instructors, which are basically like, you know, the campaign hat and a mouth with teeth. You know. And uh, so they made me uh, sort of the, uh, you know, little Lance Corporal Van Gogh of the platoon. Yeah. So yeah. they'd have me do artwork. In particular, we always call a hog board, which I'm sure they don't have anymore. But it was like, you know, this is the era of Polaroids. And the drill instructors would tell the recruits, like, you got a good looking mom, sister, girlfriend, cousin, whatever. We want to see photos, Polaroids, if you catch our drift. And so each platoon in a series or a company, we call them series, the drill sergeant would have like a competition of the hog board. So I would decorate the, you know, the, the border of it. Was it naturalism or realism? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, and then we also, the other big thing was when you go to the rifle range, mm-hmm. you get a range flag. So you got your regular guide on that has your, it's right. red and gold with your platoon numbers on right. it. And then, but when you go to the range, you get to have another flag with artwork on it. So I did that. Okay. So that was my first time the Marine Corps said, you got talent, we're going to use it. We're going to torture you for it, but we're going to use it. So you're, we're talking Jungian paradox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. opposites. Right? Yeah. So then I went... Infantry training. I, I joined the Marines to be. I was a guaranteed infantry grunt. Okay. Um, 
figure if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I, I have, you know, super high ASVAB scores. Yeah. You know, 98th percentile, 143 right. GT. Yeah. Wow. The grunt like going, you can do anything. I want to be a guaranteed grunt, you know. And so. Uh, because of the drama? Because the drama, buddy. Yeah, you're there for well, it. Well, yeah, French, yeah. you know, if there's, I'm going I'm to I'm freaking do it. Yeah. I'm going to do yeah, this, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that, you know, I mean, I'm still an adolescent. <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, I only even have to shave every day. Right. Uh, I finally got chest hair at 70. It's like, it doesn't do any good at the beach. So um, uh, I went to my first duty station. Uh, everybody around me was getting orders to Okinawa. Okay. You know, so their orders all, because they, they bring you out there, hand out, here's your orders, here's your orders. Right, here's your, you've right, had right. it stapled together. Right. And they tell you, you know, to, from, subject, right. all the particulars, like, what, is all, what are we looking at? Because yeah. after boot camp, they'd go, here's a plane ticket. Right. You better show up, Camp Pendleton, wherever, right. on this date, or we're going to hunt you down and kill you. Right, right. Aye, right. aye, sir. <laughs> um, so now you're getting your first permanent right. duty station orders. So everybody around me is like, report to CG, which is commanding general, 3rd mm. Mar Div, 3rd Marine Division, Camp Schmedley Butler, Okinawa. Mine say report to CO, MB, McAllister, OK. So I call over the staff sergeant and I go, where is this on Okinawa? Because I'm thinking maybe it's a specialty place. He goes, <laughs> he goes, no. I remember him saying, no, you're going to the land of tumbleweeds. You're going to the Marine Barracks, McAllister, Oklahoma, Naval Ammunition Depot. What? Here I am, all this drama, going to see the world. I'm going to going Oklahoma. To, oh, fucking Oklahoma. Not only going to Oklahoma, but I'm going to Pittsburgh County, which is a dry county. <laughs> to a, to a, a base that's 70,000 acres. <clears throat> Of ammunition igloos and mountain lions and herds of deer that they brought out of Vietnam so they wouldn't be extinguished by Agent Orange or whatever. Crazy. Just like wow. weirdly beautiful, but it's like, what the? <clears throat> and, and having had a little bit of college, of course, my first thing I, I, I remember thinking to myself was, the best laid plans of mice and yeah. men off go Gangalay. <laughs> you know, some Robert Burns. It's like, right. wow. Right. <laughs> Best thing that ever happened because I went there, it was a dry county, but we had the Tahiti Club. All the staff and SEALs and officers were Vietnam vets. There was so much drugs and alcohol. I thought I saw drugs and alcohol at Penn State dorms. Hadn't yeah. seen shite. Yeah. This is Uncle Sam's Marijuana Club. This is 1975. Yeah. All right. And so, um, and I'm on a guard company, which means two days on, two days off. Mm. I mean, day on, day off, day on, day off. Then you have a three-day weekend on or a three-day weekend off. Okay. And so the days off, you just go down to the Tahiti Club and just start sucking down the double rum and cokes. Wow. You know, hanging wow. everybody, shooting pool, watching television. <clears throat> and I went downhill pretty quick. And so- uh, Drugs or no, just, just the drinking? Alcohol. I never, was yeah. never getting to drugs. And so, uh, you know, when people go, God, you got, you got, why'd you stop drinking? I go, listen- if the Marine Corps tells you you have a drinking problem, <laughs> if you ask your average sailor, soldier, airman, what distinguishes Marines other than just being crass, loud <clears throat> attitude? Well, they're all drunks. Exactly. <laughs> you know, work hard, party hard. Yeah. If you go, yeah. if you manage to outdo, you know, yeah. them, yeah. they're going to go, uh, okay. And I was having some some physical stuff as far okay. as what my body was doing. So um, the CO, a guy named AJ, August J. Calamanos, was a major. 
he, uh, real strict guy, but he, he said, if you, you're going to work on this, I'll support you. If not, I'm going to bust it off in your friggin' ass. Mm -hmm. So we were 17 miles from McAllister, Oklahoma, and he had the duty bus take me to AA meetings. So I started going to AA meetings and with Okies. People in Oklahoma, this is how fast they talk. So I slowed down pretty quick because my sponsor, a guy named Dale Adams, who I'm sure has gone on to his reward, he said, Mike, I'm sure what you have to say <clears throat> is very interesting, but you talk so fast, we have no idea what you're saying. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Well, I got sober and I'm calling my parents because they don't know yet. And I'm talking to my mom and dad <laughs> at this pace. <laughs> and they're like, what is wrong with you? What? What is wrong with you? Why are you talking so slow? <laughs> I'm not talking slow. They go, my God. <laughs> but they discovered, once again, the CEO that had art talent. So now I'm doing cartoons for the weekly base newsletter. You know, just funny stuff. I'm doing all the decorations for the Marine Corps birthday ball, you know, mm -hmm. doing all this stuff. So mm -hmm. they, uh, so the, and, and the ultimate irony I talk about is of all the people slash organizations on the planet earth that enabled, encouraged, and made it possible for me to travel the world and be an artist yeah. and have exhibits was <clears throat> United States <laughs> goddamn Marine Corps. Hoorah. <laughs> You know, it's just, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's not, and so that's part of the, you know, because I've been interviewed before, people go, the Marines and art? I go, well, you know, the Marine Corps, it's its its own, and as you know, being in the Army, and my wife said, you know, we, the Marines are like, what is it, what, what are those guys, what the hell is going on over there? Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, and it is, it's, and people, I didn't make this up, they go, it's like a cult. Yeah. It's like a religion, yeah. it's this whole other thing. And as you know, there's always the meme out there. It's like, okay, if you were in the Air Force for six years and you get out, it takes about six days and completely wears off. <laughs> you know, if you were in yeah, the Navy yeah. for six years, you get out, yeah, it takes <clears throat> about six weeks and it wears off. You're in the Army for six years, it takes for six years, it'll take about another six years for it to wear off before you go back to being somewhere near normal. You're in the Marines, it will never wear off. Yeah. You, yeah. you will, that. It's yeah. done. It, they have genetically altered you. But there is that. I mean, talk about the the, the Jungian phrase. It was the tension of opposites. Yeah. Party hard, but also they really lionize their marine experience, and that depreciation of art well, and the, it, is it, exceptional. And and I would say it's not. And this isn't unique to the Marines because my you know my <clears throat> wife's a unique individual. You obviously are. You know, I've known people who've been in the Army and the Air Force and stuff. Sure. But the thing people do not expect, and I did not expect from, yeah. from the Marines in particular, is that, and so it's no, it's it's no mystery to me, anyways, why so many um, Fortune 500 founders mm. and CEOs are former jarheads, and why there is just a who's who's list of of actors, yeah, yeah, who were former Marines, and so what is it? The Marine Corps thrives on you being your authentic self, being crazy. You know, yes, you might stand in formation, spit shine, but it's like the C, your staff NCOs, I got to, they don't want to, because having been a staff NCO <clears throat> and a warrant officer, it's like, yeah, I, so, this kid is so entertaining. He's such a knucklehead. Yeah. And so they yeah. really, 
encourage you up to a point to really be unique and crazy because it's the barracks stories. The yeah. Crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you know, with the Marines, the cr- you see stuff on the internet. Yeah. The crazy, perverted, <clears throat> borderline homoerotic crap <laughs> yeah, that right. Marines do because right. they're just like, hey, we're Marines. This is what we do. But it's like when you're so highly disciplined and some would say, therefore, repressed, yeah. you're going to have to blow it out a, a, on the other end point. of the spectrum and you're going to get that individuality right. and, and, really and, and in and a high sort degree. of the thing why you're here with the combat art. The thing people get blown away with the Marine Corps Combat Art Collection, because if they don't see it, what do they expect? Well, they expect propaganda. Yeah. They they expect. Right. And and the art that's in the Marine Corps Collection that came from recruiting posters was done by professional, like J.C. Yeah. Leyendecker. So these guys were never in the service. Yeah. The body of the collection, which is like 10, 11, <clears> 12, <throat> I don't know how many pieces now, is professors come and they go, oh my God, the psychological... They like to use that word. Mm. The compelling psychological stuff that's here is wild because Marines were told, and there's a show right now at the Marine Corps Museum covering 80 years of Marine Corps combat art. The official period started in 1942 to 2022. And the orders that were given in 1942 by a General Denig, Brigadier General Denig, and the orders that I got simply said, go to war, do art. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I could not do was... Enemy dead and enemy POWs. Now, a friend of mine, Steve Mumford, did a thing of enemy POWs with sandbags over their heads. I started to do a piece like that, and I had my camera confiscated, my film, because an S2 intelligence officer, yeah. lieutenant, came yeah, yeah. Said, what are you doing here, Staff Sergeant? <clears throat> you know, I was in all Nazaria. I got, well, they got a mm-hmm. bunch of guns. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So civilian artists could do it, but I could not. Interesting. All right, so um, other than that, Style, technique, subject matter, it was all up to me because that's what they wanted. They wanted this very personal, naturalistic view. And, uh, you know, the Marine Corps did a study, I think it was General Cushman, like back in the 50s. And the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps always had a deal with the thing with, like the last president that really tried to get rid of the Marine Corps was Truman. And uh, the Marine Corps League just like shut him down. Right. And uh, um, was, uh, you know, why is there a Marine Corps? Yeah, right. Really, right. seriously, because I had an uncle that went ashore on D-Day. Um, Army sure did a damn fine job, you know, North Africa, Anzio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. Normandy, you know, they yep. went ashore, whatever. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the unique amphibious capability. I mean, of course, Marines trained. There was Marines who trained the right. Army in, on, on, you know, assault from the yeah. sea. But amphibious assault. Soldiers yeah. were big, you know, died just as well as we did. <clears throat> but they found it's like America does not need a Marine Corps. America wants a Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So mm. there were many things that were then devoted to, to that, you know, I mean, you know, I used to say to my wife, because, you know, you know that on your wedding, when we were getting married, she goes, on your wedding day, you're going to be like, compared to other women, fully accessorized. She goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you're going to be in a white dress, you know, you're going to have flowers and you're going to have a Marine in full dress blues on your arm. There's no point past that. <laughs> You're no point past that. You know? Yeah. And she laughs. She goes, mm, yeah. you know, it's, uh, yeah. and so, um, 
so the Marine Corps sort of tried to carve out, and I think effectively, this niche of, of attempting excellence in all that it does. So whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, sports, drill, <coughs> you know, uh, rifle range, uh, uh, you know, music. Yeah. Uh, all those things. You know, they want people, when you think of military music, oh, President's Home. Right. Commandant's Home. Right. I hate to say it, silent drill teams. The Marine silent drill team. Right. You know, all right. the services have a, have, right. have a version of that. Right. They all look sharp. They all have different routines, but they go, you know, the Marine routine is very simple and spartan. Yeah. You know, they yeah. don't do like a lot of some other services do kind yeah. of some stuff that you expect, like maybe, you know, the Chinese military to do something right. fancy right. schmancy, like, woohoo, right. look at us. Right. And so, um, and it's the same in a small way was with the combat art and the way they did that tension of opposites. Jungian was like, okay, we're going to just find people that are, we think are talented and set them loose. You know? So what got yeah. me the job, cause you would ask yeah. me this question, Chris, way right. back. Right. As a frustrated <clears throat> artist, I always found something to do creatively. I was with the president's helicopter squadron from 84 to 88. During that time, I got very well known making rustic hickory twig furniture. Like the one here, right? right? Yeah. Got in magazines, was recognized wow. by the, uh, the National Trust for Historic Restoration as a National Trust artisan. And I always did a little artwork on the side. Look, so it's an infantryman. You're making this no, furniture. No, now I'm, I'm, I'm working on helicopters. Oh, you're so it's, it's helicopter maintenance, basically? Is that what it is, or is it Yeah, I was avionics. Detail? Okay, avionics. Okay. Avionics, yeah, right. yeah. Um, that's another story, because when I, was at the, when I got sober at the Marine Barracks, the CO needed, because it was a small unit, and it was going to be closed down and given to the Army, and now I think it's called an Army Ammunition, Army ammunition Plant, um, Marine Corps wouldn't send any new bodies. So there was an exchange and a commissary there. They needed a bookkeeper. Okay accountant to yeah. keep the books yeah because there was no computers then other than your little <clears throat> calculator yeah right and uh the co colonel Calamon, i mean major calamos calls me and he goes you know and i'm looking at my friend corporal dry is sitting there and he was a kiowa indian and uh from oklahoma and he goes corporal dry wants an early out to go back to college he goes you he's got three weeks if you want for him to teach you accounting for a Marine Corps exchange and a commissary because it was one was called appropriated funds and one was non-appropriated. So okay. you had two separate yeah. books. Mm -hmm. They were both in the same building, but you had to keep two separate books. And uh, I was like so happy to get off being on guard duty, driving 1965 Plymouth pickup trucks with three on the column oh, and, man. And, and governors so we could only do 45 miles an hour. I was like, yeah. And Dry's like, going, I will teach, you will learn. And I did. So now I'm a double entry wow. analog bookkeeper. And they gave me that MOS. So now I went from being an 0341, which is an 81 millimeter mortarman, which I never did because they sent me to this barracks, to being a 4111 Marine Corps Exchange Accountant slash bookkeeper, double entry. And then you know, I'd already decided to go out, get out. Main, one of the reasons was, uh, and I got out for a little bit, finished my degree. <clears throat> the, uh, my MOS was eliminated by new cash registers. Because huh. point of sale took care of yeah, everything. Right, right. Added it to the inventory, <laughs> took it out of inventory. You know, so it's like it's your obsolete. So in 1978, right. I'm obsolete. AI. You know, I was you know the first we were eliminated. So now I got out, and then I decided to come back in, and uh, I was too old to be an officer. 
it was 82. It was when the last uh, 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 recession was. Right. There were no jobs. Right. right. No teaching jobs. It's like, what am I going to do? And they looked at my scores and said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. What do you got? They go, would you like to work on aircraft? And okay. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, I've never done anything like that, but what the heck? And I loved it. So I went. But that is interesting because you now had the option. You had the uh, the fork in the road where you could have just bailed altogether and tried to do civilian art, right? Yeah. I mean, you could you could you could have gone to the Lower East Side and yeah, but gone I was, with Basquiat I was, and tried to do that. Not whole that it's thing. an excuse, but an explanation is like I was still married to my first wife then. Okay, and she was like, no, 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 no. Going back okay. to the Marine Corps, it was okay for if I wanted to you know teach art, but and she had her father had been uh, she was a Canadian, and her father had been in the Canadian Air Force. So me going back in the okay. Marine Corps was like not, you know, she wasn't like it wasn't oh, a big deal. No. Okay, all right. Um, just as an aside, I met my. First wife in the Père Lachaise Cemetery looking for Jim Morrison's grave. It's <laughs> a good trivia point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, uh, I had gotten out of the Marines for a couple, two years, three years, and I was going back to Penn State. They made me start from scratch. <clears throat> oh, wow. Because I left there with like a 1.8 GPA. And uh, I was so insulted. I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. <laughs> they go, well, it doesn't matter. You still got to start at a branch campus. Um, wow. And then, uh, so I had a good friend who had stayed in the Marines. He was an embassy guard in Paris. So he knew my love of art. He said, well, you know, why don't you come over? You can stay, probably can't do that now, but he said, you can stay here at the Marine house in Paris. So I got a round trip ticket. It was called Laker Airlines, a guy named Freddie Laker. $315 round trip to Gatwick Airport outside of London. Yeah. Get on the different trains and stuff and yeah. end up in Paris. So, um, and my friend had duty one day. He says, well, I know you were like, you know, a big Jim Morrison fan. You know, and, and let me tell you, back up in high school, yeah. you know, there were like different groups as far as the music they liked. There were right. the people who liked the Rolling Stones. Right. And, and Ozzy Osbourne, you know, the really hard, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. And then there were the people that like, were like the Beatles, you know, mm-hmm. they liked the Beatles and that sort of more poppy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there were the arts and fartsy people. Yeah. We were the ones that listened to King Crimson. Yeah. Emerson Lake and yeah. Palmer. Uh, the Moody Blues. You know, the philosophical, oh, I'm in search of the lost chord. <laughs> you know? Were you into yes? Did you like yes? No, I did not like okay. yes. I still wanted to understand the lyrics. <laughs> I don't want to hear about marmots falling out of the sky. I have, I have no idea what that is. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And of course, you know, this and, and Led Zeppelin, you know, some Led Zeppelin stuff. Sure, sure. I can still remember 1971, first time hearing Stairway to Heaven in a dorm and everybody losing their freaking minds with the ba da da Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh! yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was just as an aside, uh, there was a, a guy does, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he, on NPR, it was called the Shickley Mix. Okay. Professor Shickley. And he would do like exposés on different music. Yeah. And uh, you might edit this out, but he did it one time, he, one of his things was called orgasm music. <laughs> right? And one uh, of the things he talked about was stairway the to guitar heaven. chord. And yeah. sort of build up yeah. and then like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like. It's a great idea. It's a know, great, yeah, concept like, for sure. Yeah, there you go. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and so uh, she didn't have a problem, but it was like, you know, to do art full-time. But yeah. I was doing the furniture on the, the furniture. side, and yeah. uh, it, got, it got pretty big. I, was, had, I had uh, interior designers and decorators up and down from, from Richmond up to, up to New wow. York City. Wow. Including, I mean, I did big twig displays for, like, department stores like Wanamakers and Gimbals. Okay, and yeah, all, yeah. And all, you know, wow. All that kind of thing. So 
And um, how did you feel about it? I mean, did you feel conflicted? Were you like, I could no, do I so much like, more if I was I, out? What or? it was, was uh, is, is in 1982, there was a magazine called Metropolitan Home, and they did an article on rustic furniture. And I saw it, and I just, it just really, you know, there's the nature side. You know, there's the yeah. people side. Yep. And, uh, you know, I had worked at a summer camp. And when I was younger, my parents, we'd go to a, a place up uh, Lake Winnipesaukee up in New mm. Hampshire. So yeah. that whole, I hadn't given it a name, but that sort of, <clears throat> sort of cottagey, rustic thing yeah. was, I think, definitely wired into me. Mm. And so now I see this like, oh my God, this furniture. I just went crazy. I taught myself how to make it, did tons of research, et cetera. Um, and I got quite well known for it. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but um so I always did artistic things, but the right. thing where I, I got out of the Marine Corps again and actually resulted was I, when I went to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, I yeah. was with a, a, a Marine he- medium helicopter squadron 365 out of New River Air Station. So HMM 365. Um, and, uh, you know, we went over and we did Desert Storm, Desert Shield. We also did a, a short mission with in Somalia right in the middle of everything that nobody mm-hmm. ever heard of, Operation Eastern Exit. And uh, I, I always took a sketchbook with me. So now I'm, I'm doing these little slice-of-life sketches. Okay. And then I started doing pen and ink drawings because one of the things was I was – I actually – because I went from President's Helicopter Squadron, I went to recruiting, which left no time for anything – and then from recruiting to the war, uh, I was in North Carolina and there was no Hickory mm. coastal North Carolina uh, to make furniture with. Yeah. So, so you needed something else. So I started doing the yeah. fine arts on the side and I started doing photographs, working with photographs and doing pen and ink stuff. And then I also, when I was at, at war, I was, I was aware of that the Marine Corps had combat art. And I said, you oh, work. you know, I don't know if anybody's over here, but I'm with this this particular uh, 4th Marine Expeditionary Unit or 4th Marine Expeditionary Brigade, MEB. Let me just, I mean, I'm just going to do some sketches. Maybe the Marine Corps won it, not, you know. And it, so, so I, I, you know, I did a handful of stuff. And, uh, and then I but also did some <clears throat> civilian stuff. So part of my story, Chris, is in 1993 in New River, North Carolina, the University of Wilmington, the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, with some grant, I'm sure, through the state, sponsored a, an art competition at the local mall. And they had an amateur side and a professional side. So I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm an amateur. I don't make a living at this. Right. So I submitted three works, two pen and ink drawings and and one watercolor. Were they from the Marine Corps? Were they like no, no, military-based? No, 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 they were just civilian. They were landscapes. Okay. So wow. this is this people, because wow. the stuff okay. I did for the Marine Corps pencil sketches was of people. Like I okay. did one sketch of Marine Force Reconnaissance Marines mm. aboard the USS Guam under red lights at night mm. waiting to go into, they were the first ones that went into Mogadishu. Gotcha. So they were just laying on the non-skid, you know, <clears throat> their T-shirts and their gear everywhere. And I just sat down and I sketched them and, and I did some other stuff. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a dichotomy. And so, um, you know, and I, once again, I'm, I think the connecting thing that you've brought out is it's the naturalism. It's just yeah. what am I experiencing and what resonates with me? Yeah. So now um, I got these three pieces, right? So they have the competition and I go over when it's, they've, they've had the judging. And, uh, and remember, you know, part of the background of this is my current wife was like, you know, stay in the Marines. Yeah. She liked the, the stability <clears throat> and the medical care mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep. And, uh, 
So, because uh, she was not pressuring me to get out at all. And I was like, oh, gosh. Because um, I was, uh, this is sort of, you would understand this. And people in the military understand this. I was like at a terminal rank, E6. Because I was in an MOS that there was no yeah, promotion. I yeah. picked up E6 meritoriously on recruiting duty. And I had found out that post-Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and, you, and coming back from Yugoslavia, that I, I was going to be basically the next seven and a half, eight years in the yeah. Marine Corps as an E6. Wow. I was, I was wow. junior. We call them monitors. You guys might call them detailers. <clears throat> I was junior on the lineal list. I was the yeah. most junior, junior E6 out of like 100 guys. So the, the, the monitor said, you know, you just, the chances of you picking up Gunny – and I had put in for avionics officer, warrant officer, four times, was second on the Marine, on the wing, second Marine wing board. Uh, the guy that was, had the lieutenant colonel that had done the final interview, he said, oh, you're going to pick it up this time. You're going to pick it up this time. I didn't. And I'm like, what is my, you know, that combined with doing art, I'm like, well, what is my motivation? Right, I right. I got a college degree. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be, you know, in the float cycle for another <clears> seven <throat> years. The marriage is already, hmm. But back to this Wilmington, this university, UNC Wilmington show. So I go over to the mall to pick my artwork up. I see first place, second place, and honorable mention on my three pieces. And I'm picking them up, and the girl there goes, here, I have an envelope for you, because it had, there was money. I think it was like 250 bucks for first place. Now, professional side was 1500 I wish I had kept the letter, but it was the professor, art professor from UNC, who had done the judging. And he had a very nice note. He said, Mr. Fay, if you had put your art in the professional category, wow. you would be going home with a lot more money. And that was it. I just, I told my then wife, I go, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to get out, pursue doing the furniture and the art and creative stuff. Wow. And, and I did. And up to her decision to sort of bail, um, I was, I had, I had a major contract with a, a major, uh, uh, catalog company called the plow and hearth out of uh, for the furniture for the furniture wow <clears throat> was designing up twenty five thousand dollars worth of uh, conceptual art for a new uh startup company called anthropology which oh, is now real geez. wow um you know and uh so things are and she just you know she wasn't having it yeah so so, <clears throat> so it was a not a good period but back so finally I had this little bit of artwork. Yeah. No finished paintings, a few watercolors, sketch work from life. And I'm living in Fredericksburg, Virginia after the divorce because we lived outside of Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania County. So I retreated right. into the city, right. had a little apartment, had my artwork up on the walls. And uh, I'm walking downtown Fredericksburg and I see this gallery slash antique shop. And I recognized the art in the window. And it was a woman named Donna Neary, Colonel Donna Neary. And she was the artist for the Marine Corps at the time. Gotcha. Uh, but she was, a, you know, she's had a civilian career. Yeah, yeah. And she was, uh, her antique, she was an expert in uh, colonial era clothing. Wow. Wow. You know. Okay. Uh, I mean, people would call her up and say, hey, we found some shoes under the, <laughs> under, that pack rats had put under the, you know, and she would tell them what. <laughs> She just knew about that. that she was her analyzed thing. it. She was making a pretty good living by doing uh, <clears throat> portraits of battalion uh, commanding officers for the British Army because every every British battalion has its own unique character. Wow! So she's doing these portraits, 
And, uh, and that wasn't through the Marine Corps. That was no, no, like no. on her own. But okay, for the wow. Marine Corps, she was also doing art. Wow. Right? Okay. And she's coming up on retirement. She's a full colonel. Wow. And I'm in there visiting with her with a beard, a mullet. I claim it wasn't a mullet. My daughter said, Dad, you had a mullet. <laughs> and an earring, right? So I'm being the best damn civilian I could possibly be. You know, I've got out of the Marine Corps at age 40. The Marine Corps told me, you're too old to come back. Here's the deal. Because you, you won't be able to retire by age 47 right. with 20 years. So you right. know that going out the door. Right. I said, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now it's like, so Donna goes, I, I happen to, you know, oh, by the way, I'm an artist and I was in the Marine. She goes, oh, that's interesting. I'd see your art sometime. I said, how about right now? She's like, well, I go, I'll be right back. So five blocks down, get the artwork off the wall, get my little sketchbooks. Why? Why did you want to show it to her that much? I just was like, it clicked. Because you were thinking of going back in or did you just Yeah, I thought, be- well, you know what? Let me see, you know, because now I'm, I'm basically, thanks to my best friend, I'm, un- I'm unencumbered. Got you. I'm a free agent again. So now having gone, having tacked hard for art, you're now realizing your best avenue is back in the Marine Corps for art. Possibly. Who knows? Okay. And yeah. did, uh, sorry, just to clarify, did the did the Marine Corps Combat Art Program take any of your sketches from oh, Mogadishu? Yeah, yeah. They did. Yeah, so yeah. they so they were tracking you. They had no, 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 no. I had them. I just now it's like I. Okay, so now you're hunting. Now they, for they have them in the collection now. Oh, but not then. Not then. at the time. No, no, no. Okay, no, no, all right. No, 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 no. So okay, so they still you were kind of unknown still to the. Oh program. yeah, they have no okay. idea. All right. So I. Uh, um, <clears throat> I come back down with my stuff and Donna's like, wow, interesting, interesting. She goes, uh, cause they were looking for somebody and they hadn't been able to find anybody. Okay. Believe it or not. And she said, are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, I go, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm already like 46 going on 47. She goes, eh, don't worry about that. So she said, why don't you come up and meet the unit? So the unit that had the artists was what they call it an IMA reserve detachment, mm-hmm. individual mobilization mm-hmm. augmentee. Usually they're very specialized little yeah. think tank yeah. groups. And it was a unit of mostly historians and one artist in support of the Marine Corps historical. Uh, uh, it, it used to be at the Navy Yard. Marine okay. Corps historical, uh, I forget what they called it anymore, but um, division, history division. So I said, sure. So, you know, and I made a decision, like, you know, I'm not going to get, and I had stayed in good shape. I, I, okay. I had always worked out. Okay. I got I had my uniforms. I made sure I fit into them. I said, "Hey, right, you still fit? I'm good." So, um, but I said, "Yeah, I'm not going to shave. I'm not going to get a haircut. I'm not going to take the earring out. I'm just going to go up and see what this is all about." So I took my artwork up there, and it was such a it was all lieutenant colonels and majors and and, and, a, and a couple colonels, very collegial. A couple of them were college professors. Okay. Uh, the head of the unit was a CIA <laughs> officer. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. God. In there, he was a he was a a jag in CIA, but anyway. Yeah. So like they saw the artwork and it was like, that was, they were like, Oh yeah. Like slice of life and stuff. And it's like, do you think you want to do this? I was like, well, yeah, if you can make it happen, it took almost three years, two years. Cause they had to get all these different waivers, three waivers they had to get staff NCO out over 24 hours, staff NCO out over a year and wow. the age waiver. You know, I had to go to prior service recruiters to a PFT. Right. I got a nice mid-high first class. <clears throat> you know, all of this. Um, and this is all still pre-9-11, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, this is like 1997, okay. 98-ish. Okay. Because I, I swore back in, got the haircut, got out the uniform. Wow. And uh, uh, in January of, uh, of 2000, they said, 
you're all set. Go up to the wow. Navy Yard in Philly. I mean, in, in, in D.C., Anacostia. Yeah. And uh, somebody there is going to swear you back in. I was like, get the... I was like pinching myself. Wow. I go, this is unbelievable. So the first... And they only gave me a two-year contract. So the first two years, all I did was work on conceptual stuff for the new museum. What did that mean? Just they wanted... Yeah, they wanted like... If you ever get to the Marine Corps Museum, there's a lot of these... Uh, like two people <clears throat> together type displays, like a World War One Marine fighting a German. Okay, all this stuff. So okay. I was basically doing conceptual illustration stuff for them. And was it from pictures, or was it from your imagination, or what was so it? I, I'd have to make up reference material. And okay, stuff. all right. Um, you know, early in the computer age, you could find stuff, and then the mu- museum, the historical division at that time had a, a library full of all kinds of reference okay. material, and they had the photo cattle, you know combat camera photographs okay. way back. So yeah. I was like, um, and then I also was helping the curator with the collection, you know, okay. keeping track of it, cleaning it, et cetera. So, so kind of I, administrative. Yeah, I was bit. kept busy. It was okay. very interesting. And, and and it was good because I got, became very aware of what was in the collection, okay. you know, of different artists and, and styles and stuff. Almost went to Kosovo, but they only had enough money to send a historian. So I got axed from that. Okay. Then 9-11 happened and everything changed. And now they had a war they needed to capture. Right. And so it happened on September 11th, as you know. Our drill weekend was the next weekend. And I went in, and the colonel said, all right, who's ready to go? And there were three of us were like two historians, younger guys, and myself were like, he said, all right, come Monday, just show up, start getting your stuff together. He goes, we don't have orders for you yet. You know, it's an, it's almost a new FY, so fiscal year. So, uh, especially for me, as, yeah. as the only, yeah. only enlisted guy, E6, <clears throat> um, we've got lots of what they call drill points. Lots of money. So even though I wasn't getting, quote unquote, the benefits, I'm getting two days pay for every day I'm yep. showing up. Yep, right. So I'm essentially getting my base pay. I'm, right, I'm like, right. I've never had, you know, more money in my life. I was like, yeah, buddy. Right. Um and uh, and how, how, sorry, how are you feeling at this point? Oh, I'm so psyched! I'm like, did you were going back to the range? Were you feeling up to par to go down range? Oh yeah, yeah. I wasn't. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm 70. I right. was in my 40s. I was like everybody thought I was in my my early 30s. Sure, so sure, like, sure. But what about just your skill set? What about just shooting no, they, we, and just no, they started, operating we, we, in a combat? They started environment. doing all that stuff. Okay. to get us, you know, uh, <clears throat> qualify for deployment. You know, okay, we, we got to do you know vehicle rollover stuff. Right, and, right, right. They took us down to AP Hill, and we did had a whole briefing on IEDs, and okay. then we had to do ambush training, like where you sat in the vehicle, where to get out, who's your battle bunny. So we had to get. Okay. There was a term for it, and it's it's, it's <clears throat> like pre-mob or something. Yeah, it was yeah. just you had to have all these checks in the box okay. before you could go. And then, how rigorous was it though? Because considering it was super rigorous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because we're a bunch of you know. We're just reservists, so we're like getting trained with a bunch of other reservists. But was there? I mean, because it was Afghanistan. Oh yeah, and it's after nine eleven, so there's no footprint. We don't really know. That's a pretty exotic country to be going into oh, with yeah. no frame of reference. It was crazy. So I mean, was there any sense of like, okay, you're gonna be there with like Delta guys and SEALs, and you got to know how to fit into we, them or anything? We had or no idea. Okay, we're just right. like. I mean, I can tell you when I when we flew into into <clears throat> Kandahar, 
I mean, they were doing, it's, it's like mid November and we're doing combat rolls and it's like that, that C-130 is dipping and diving and you're just sitting in the back under these blue lights, like what the, yeah, and yeah, you're, yeah. you're going, because yeah. they're doing all this calm, evasive stuff. Right. And then we get out and there's a few strings with chem lights and we're just tripping over gear everywhere because right, right. there was a thing called Task Force 58 was there. Um, and part of the <clears throat> Marine Corps Expeditionary Unit, that the combat unit was, uh, I think, three six third battalion six Marines. You know, so you have, you know, you're it's it's dark. It's you know somebody's leading you, and it's like yeah, you're of course. just tripping over. Yeah. Oh my God, it was yeah. just so it was great. Right. You know, and next thing you know, you're like out in the wilds of flatlands of Afghanistan on patrol, and I'm like pinching myself, like holy guacamole, man. Yeah. And I thought yeah. I, when I was out of the Marine Corps, and that was it. <clears throat> and part of the dynamic, because I'm older is I got stop lost. So you were in country. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm for, not I only had a two-year contract, so I'm not getting discharged. I'm stop lost. Oh, got you. Okay, so your contract just came. How long were you in country? That well, first we were there deployment? from like mid-November and we left uh, late April. So we were, I mean, we were all over the place. We were in Pakistan. Wow, you know, wow. We were in a couple places in Afghanistan, you know, uh, Kabul, Bagram. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bagram was probably the most interesting. That was really primitive. Um, but was into Kabul, you know, went into Kabul and, <coughs> you know, uh, you know, I mean, all the trees were covered in kites. Yeah. Don't forget, you know, the, the weird potential, you know, that we all felt. And now, you know, we realize that, I hate to say it, some cultures is so broke, ain't, you can, you know, the whole neocon thing. We're going to bring democracy and that'll make the world a safer place because democratic nations are less yeah, likely right. to go to war. Great idea. That's like saying this whole generation of Gen Zs and millennials who don't want to work, don't want to have kids, don't really have religion. 73% of them are not qualified, minimum, meet the minimum requirements for military service, are going to save the world and are going to devote themselves to climate change. It's habits. true. It, it's true. But w when was your Good last luck. time in Afghanistan? When did you? When was last the last time I was time there? Was in May of uh, 2010. I went as a civilian. Okay. All right. It changed. I will say because I left in October 2020, yeah. and to see a generation that had spent 20 years being raised yeah. under American protection, I will say the Afghan military was radically different. And we talked about it actually when I, when Pineapple Express sure. was going on. We were getting people out in the withdrawal. Yeah. And it was funny. We talked about it in our community about the guys that have been there before 2013 and after 2013. The difference in cult in the Afghan culture from the impact, the footprint we had had. And I gotta say, I'm like, there was a lot of change. And like the people, the loathing of the Afghans from people that have been there before 2013, and then the rest of us that have been there after 2013 were like, what they they're there's no oh, that's that's not a thing anymore but there had been a big generational shift um that i saw with them yeah well we i was but it was there. a big mountain to climb yeah, there's well, no choice well, I, about I, it know, the, the, my quote unquote generation uh, you know the afghan soldiers were rather old yeah yes and yes. uh their cultural uh norms <laughs> with regards to yeah. sexual proclivities <laughs> Uh, i.e. Uh, jiggy jiggy man love thursday and bocce boss yeah. was yeah. Uh, probably resulted in a few uh, you know uh, oh you were there in the in the primitive years afghan Absolutely. on afghan on coalition violence cuz yep. yep. i saw it i mean i saw you know out on patrol especially in 2010 you know the 
you know, Marine corporals going up to Afghan soldiers going, you need to get your freak, you tell the interpreter, you need to tell Ahmed here to stop walking hand in hand with the little boys trying to get his date and keep his head in the game or I am going to butt fuck him with my yeah. rifle till he bleeds buttermilk. Yeah. And the, and the interpreter, like who was a kid from California, like he was like, all right, go, you yeah. tell him. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm going to, I will, you know, yeah. and, then, and then one unit, I won't say what, I went with them to their, and there was, it was, it was, uh, had been like some big drug lords compound. And there were like two big giant buildings that were really, you know, yeah. awful. Somebody thought they looked good. And the smaller of them was, you know, the Afghan one. And I go up on the roof and the one guy goes, Hey, you want to see what those two guys are doing over there? And my NVGs, I go, do I want to? He goes, not really. Not really. Oh my God. That was that Helmand? Was that Canada? Uh, out and out in the Southwest? Or were you it back was down in Gomser or not? Oh yeah, it was, it yeah, Gomser. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Like, yeah, yeah. So that was a, and I could tell already. I mean, the Marines then were like getting like Vietnam Marines. Yeah, like yeah. You know, I just want to get out of here alive. Yeah, and guys were sporting goatees and little. They were just they were out there, not getting relieved. They're an engine country. Mohawks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, Severe, yeah. not like high and tights. Right. You know. Right. Like the guy in like the movie Fury, the one guy with you know the Hispanic guy with the goatee. <laughs> right. This guy's like, I go, oh, big yeah. change of, like it's not like we're not going to change anything here, other than maybe I'll get to kill a few guys, yeah. and go home in one piece. Between your first deployment to Afghanistan and your last one, how many deployments did you have in between that? I mean, I went to Iraq twice. Okay. I went in two thousand and three, and then 05 to 06. Did you feel like you had the appropriate amount of time to not just decompress, but also artistically capture things and continue to kind of refresh yourself artistically to be able to go back into another combat zone and go, I, didn't, I got fresh eyes for this and I can no, take it all in? that thought process, uh, I, I never wanted to leave. Okay. No. I, I mean, I, I, I personally call uh, PTSD combat addiction syndrome. Mm. You know, it was mm. like, you know. Um, and, and one of the things when we were talking earlier yeah. that came up in conversation that, that I, I realized is the, the, the word home. Right? Yeah. So living here in Lebanon County, especially knowing how deep my mom's roots are here, yeah. it feels like home. Or as my wife says, Michael's got dead relatives in every cemetery. And I do. My earliest ancestors in this area go back to 1640. Mm. Wow. With the last name McNeil. People wow. don't realize it wasn't so much, it was, you know, this was a colony of England. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't really till, uh, you know, till uh, William Penn told all the German religious yeah. people they could come here. So you had a lot of Irish and Scotch and, uh, and, and the English were here. So um, when I did my DNA, I, I found out that, yeah, on my dad's side, he that's 100% Irish. Wow. 100%. Wow. I got cousins on Ancestry who's... Aunt, my aunt or uncle married a girl in the neighborhood. Yeah, their pies, yeah. their genetic pie is green. <laughs> there are no other slices. There are no other slices. I think yeah. one's got two percent Welsh. Yeah. But other than that, it's like. But on my mom's side, it's extremely varied, and a lot of it has to do with, um, over here, um, Cornwall Furnace, because Robert Coleman. Uh, who was a protege of James Buchanan, uh, huh. one of our worst presidents. Yeah. He was James Buchanan. James Buchanan was Robert Coleman's, excuse me, was Robert Coleman's uh, uh, attorney. And uh, so this Robert Coleman, Northern Irishman, bowed out a German who couldn't make these mines work. 
and, and uh, had a whole bunch of mines. And he was America's first millionaire. He lived down in Lancaster. Wow. People always think Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that's German. <clears throat> no, Lancaster, it was a British bomber in World War II right. and is a city. Right. It's English. Right. It's yeah, not yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania Dutch. You yeah. know, people think of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, no, that's where all the Germans right. lived now once. Right, right, right. Sorry, no. Um, I mean, the mines over here is Cornwall. Yeah. Gretna is Gaelic for Gravelly Hill. Right, right. One of the main streets down here is Rockerty Road. That's a Scottish surname. The township in Lancaster, right over the border, Raffo, that's a district in County Donegal. Mm. Down on 322, the main road you came in, you get down, you get to Londonderry and Campbelltown. Next, the next over Dauphin County, the next township over there is Derry Township. You know, so. Yeah. Um, you couldn't have lived anywhere else, could you? Have? So, I, you know, when you talked about in your genes, I mean, that's, yeah. a, you know, uh, without getting too new agey, I mean, they talk about, you know, things get passed genetically, you yeah. know, generational trauma, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, the landscape here, which is, and there are people who, who study it, um, and, and uh, to sort of diverge for a moment, um, in England, they call them trackways. Okay. And there's a guy named Tony Robinson who was, uh, there was a, uh, in hilarious English series called The Black Adder. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah Tony yeah. Robinson played uh, 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 the goofy little uh, sidekick. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, what was his name? Uh, not Chadwick, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not going to think of anyway, it. Anyway, but he, yeah. he, he was always nasty and smelly and stuff. Yeah. I think maybe he thought he was so typecast, he, he got into making these interesting documentaries. One's called Time Team. Okay. And the other is, I forget what it's called, but he, he goes on these trackways, which are the oldest... English roads going way back, I mean, to the Stone Ages. Um, the oldest one is called the Icknield Way, right? And then there's, okay. uh, uh, they're all, you know, one of them was the main Roman road, north and south. And all okay. But what is interesting to me is how they read the landscape. In what way? Just, just to look at the, the hedgerows and read the history, the, 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 the rises in the ground that are man-made. Yeah. You know, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Or how a road, you know, there must have been a farm here because it went down and zigged and went another way. And you say, here, you come up here, the road. Yeah, yep. Like, why, do yep. these, why does the landscape... So there's so much, I think, subliminal. So yeah. I, I only just... And, yeah, yeah, And the same yeah. is true in faces. Because one of the things I'm told I'm very <clears throat> good at is portraiture and really getting... I mean, you see these, this is yep. Kyle Carpenter images um, of just, you know, getting that person just, yeah. you know, um, is is the landscape of their face is so telling. There's so mm. much there. And I guess, in, and you've got me thinking about this, Chris, is that for me, you know, the, the combat art, especially doing portraits and stuff, um, is, is the, in doing my landscapes is, you know, a portrait of a place, mm. you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, one of the things, go back to Marine Corps combat art or good combat art, just not mine, is we were never asked to distill ourselves out of the image. Right. Right. Because people always say, um, and I didn't, I didn't come up with this. It was in an article that was written about me and a couple of other guys. Uh, I think it was in the, I would say the Washington Post very early on. Okay. Was, uh, they asked some professor, <clears throat> I'd have to find the article again, like, you know, why in the age of digital photography? Would you need right. analog artists, right? You know, to to record. And this guy said, "Well, you know, photography is like prose. It does what it does. 
the art is like poetry. Yeah. You know, yeah. it it does. And and the thing I think why people find combat art a bit more compelling goes all the way back to our ancient DNA. It's something about knowing that some other human being made that image. Yeah. There's something in our yeah. in our in our in our synapse that that give it a power that the most realistic photograph right might overwhelm me with detail right whereas artwork <clears throat> is like if art is does what it should do um and distills it down to its essence you know it has a, a certain aesthetic power that maybe a photo doesn't mean art photographs that are mind-blowing but um can do things that that, that a photograph because i think when we see a photograph we tend to think oh this come from a machine there was an operator yeah, right, right. There's an operator right. that did a good job, you know. Yeah. You know, framed the shot, waited yeah. for it, yeah. got an asymmetric angle, did a good job developing it, but it's still sort of, you're thinking about the process and, the, mm-hmm. and the, you're, the, you're sort of very aware of the technology, which I think a photographer can, they can use to their benefit if they're very sure. creative. Yeah. You know, a pencil sketch, yeah. you know, uh, being able to <clears> you know, edit things out. And it's hard to explain. And when, when I'm working on a drawing, it's just, I'm going to have this area a little darker. And it's like, then it starts to pop, you know, and you go, Ooh, that's working. I like what that's doing. I can't tell you exactly what it's doing, you know, but it's doing something. And then you get the feedback from viewers, um, you know, like one of these, I'm trying to think, which I think that's that sketch there Mm -hmm. was uh, a guy named Jonathan Jones from a big newspaper in England had come across a thing I'd written from the New York Times and saw it and just wrote the most wonderful review of that mm. sketch, you know, that this is yeah. like, this is what art should do. And I was like, oh, somebody I've never met, yeah. an ocean yeah. away, all he's got is the image. <clears throat> and he felt so compelled by it to write an article about it. Just about the image. It wasn't really about me. It's like, this is like, you know, so as an artist, it's like, yes, that's that's what it's all about, you know. I want to ask you about the home thing because to me, when you're saying, look, PTSD is really battle addiction, addiction to war. I have to believe that then there's an immense amount of therapeutic value and artistic value to decompress, deconstruct, unpack experiences when you're in a home base, a base that you feel inspired, safe, comfortable in your element again. Is that kind of what Pennsylvania and this area has meant to you because of the amount of time you spent downrange? Oh, sure. I mean, and, and, and I'm talking also for my wife who, uh, uh, you know, she was there and went over the berm in 03 with the army. Wow. And, uh, yeah. you know, she um, got IED'd in, uh, right outside the green zone and mm-hmm. she was driving and her interpreter sitting behind her had the back of her head blown off. You know, so she, yep. you know, she'd been there, done that. Yep. As she jokingly says, I took a rifle and Michael took crayons. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I got to articulate things, you know, because when, when, when I teach art, mm-hmm. I teach a course called Reportage Art. Okay. And, and it's interesting that um, with the theme of home is um, one of the things I, I'll say to the students, you know, professors like to ask questions with the most obvious freaking answer just to watch students like just bounce all over the place so mm-hmm. i say you know what does art do so i'm gonna ask you chris you're a smart guy mm-hmm. what does art do 
explores, examines, no, and glorifies the human shut, condition. Sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. Wah, 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 wah. Art articulates. It's the word. Art articulates. And it, you think about the word articulate, metaphor. I mean, like okay. when, when, a, when, a, when a joint is well articulated or disarticulated, out of joint. Yep. You know, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know? And so I think for a lot of, and I could speak for a lot of Marines I was in combat with, uh, which goes to a certain thing you sort of alluded to. One of the things about being a, a combat artist is, you know, you show up and you have permission to show up at a battalion. And the S3 officer or the, or the XO is looking at you like going, who the F are you? Why are you here to start eating my chow and filling up my shit? Right, right. You know, it's like, uh, you know, headquarters Marine Corps says I need to send you out once. We'll see what the hell happens. And they're yeah, not yeah, like, yeah. like, right. you know, you're, I got an artist. <clears throat> I thought you were like a martial artist. <laughs> no. Right. You're not here to teach McMap, Marine Corps martial art? <laughs> no, I'm here to draw. Right. What? Right. So, because if you're going in a Humvee, somebody else isn't. Right. Right. Because there's only five guys in it. Yep. One up, two up front, two in yep. the back, and one guy standing in the turret. So you got a battle buddy. You know, and Lance Corporal Bonatz is looking at you going, who's this old guy with a, with a nine mil? You know. So you go out on patrol and stuff happens, and then word comes back. He goes, hey, he handled himself, and, and uh, you know, we saw his sketches, and this is kind of cool. And then you hang out with the unit, and pretty soon you start hearing stuff because you're an older guy. You yeah, know? right. And the CO goes, you know, we're glad to have you. You're sort of like, you're like a chaplain. Yeah. Yeah. You're like this older guy doing something different. And it's just, it's just good. Didn't, could, didn't anticipate it. Can't quite yeah. put it into doctrine, but not a bad thing, you know? But I think what it's leading me up to saying is that I think the problem for, especially combat vets, and it's like, and if you're a fobbit and you've lived on a fob and you've gone to the chow hall and you've hid from scud attack, whatever it is, you know, you develop these bonds and it's home. Mm-hmm. I'm good at this. I'm at home in my own skin. I'm with people that I trust. You know, I mean, uh, Sebastian Younger one time got interviewed by uh, Terry Gross, mm-hmm. and he said, he said, you know, he said, he said, war is men heaven utopia. Yeah. Other than the lack yeah. of women, yeah. men will never know the agape, the love of other men, yeah. the camaraderie. The sense of purpose. It, life is so simple. And it, I think part of what PTSD is, is you don't feel at home when you come home. Yeah. You know, I want to be back in my camis, crunching around on gravel, sitting in one of them toy fours, shitting in the blue water, mm-hmm. reading cockamamie shit on the wall. I remember reading one thing, and I, I got a buddy that I deployed with. He goes, Paco's mother, Paco's mother's pussy tastes like raisins and butterscotch pudding. <laughs> and I will yeah, go, I yeah. always go, I, on, on, sometimes on Facebook, I go, Paco's mother's, he'll go, he'll finish vagina tastes like <laughs> butterscotch and raisins. But it's just that wacky shit. Yeah, yeah. And even, yeah. you know, he, Sebastian Younger, who's deployed, was at yeah. that yeah. nine months when on top Corangal. of the fucking hill yeah. getting shot at. Yeah. You know, he became, they accepted him because he was like their little sensei their little you know shaman whatever it was you know that he was going to tell their story yeah and it's so it's like you come home and it's not really home that's why when i it's like i'm going back yahoo mountain dew i can't wait i mean literally cannot wait to get off the freaking bird on the tarmac in the dark seeing the lights yeah on this you know ad hoc airfield 
step. It's like field of dreams. Yeah. As soon as I step off the the hard top, I'm, I'm yeah. feel of the gravel, yeah. the smell of the diesel from the generators, you know, uh, the smell of the burn pits, you know, going into the the late night chow hall, get myself a freaking bologna and cheese sandwich, yeah. you know, and some warm, cool, whatever. It's just like, this yeah. is home. And so I think here doing the landscapes, you know, this is home. I think that particularly for, for GIs, it's like, that's the dilemma. You know, and who was the writer? Thomas Mann or somebody said, you can never go home. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. uh, or, yeah. like, you know, Lao Tzu or somebody said, we can never step in the same river twice. I mean, all that sort of stuff. But I think that's the that's the thing. And so I do know that in terms of being an artist, that when guys go to the museum or whatever or, or contact me online, mm-hmm. it's like when they see the art, they go, yeah, that's, yeah. I want to ask you about this one thing that just cropped up. So as a support guy in a special operations group, I was always very neurotic about making sure – my skill set was not going to be was going to be value add, and that I wasn't going to be a negative, yeah, on the team because mm-hmm. it was a small unit. You're taking up somebody's chow and all right. that. When rounds started flying and all that, was it the training that kicked it? How were you? Do was that? How much of a concern was it for you to make sure you were tactically competent and a value add if rounds started popping off? Well, and how much did you work at it? And what's the balance like when you're also trying to be an artist? Well, I don't know if I you know work at it because I wasn't like, you know, I'm going like in the Marines, I'm going out to Mojave Viper, and and running around you know right. with the Ford element you know, as as the right different rounds are changing and hitting you know right. Although I've been to Mojave Viper, um, and went through that training. Um, you don't know till you're in combat for the first time, right? How you're going to be, and so once again, feeling at home. Uh, uh, I was grateful how I was. I was okay. Like, I, you know, the focus. You know, you only think about it later. You know, when it's like you know, it's it's, you know, because I got a camera or something. It's like, you know, I got my rifle hanging. You know, so I'm taking pictures. I'm watching. You know, tr- you know, mm-hmm. and then shit starts to happen, and. People start, you know, bounding forward, taking turns. It's like, and you just like, get into the groove, you know. So I know that I've done that, you know, um, fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Not a flight guy. Maybe it might become a situation where I, I right, have, sure, sure, sure. But right. I, I can unapologetically say that when you know, um, I have two combat action ribbons that units made sure that I got because you were there when the shit happened. Yeah, you know. So that I don't know that, but, but well, I mean, did you? Tra- I mean, I guess because what amazes me is. Your preoccupation has to be on your art. Yeah. Well. So then, when I mean, when the rounds start flying, it's like okay. I mean, you have you were an infantryman. You know, you had training, yeah, yeah. but keeping keeping the skill set sharp so that you can respond in this kind of kinetic yeah. situation. I mean, how much of that was a concern? How much did it need to be a concern? I, for I you? really wasn't worried because I mean, I, you know, I like I said, I'm through boot camp, infantry training, NCO schools where you do all this stuff. Um, you felt like you had it. You felt like you yeah, were I really enough. didn't. Okay. Know, I, I knew I was physically in good shape. Okay. It's more like okay, you know, you're waiting for that that real baptism of fire. Not like oh, they're shooting over there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, no, they're shooting at us. Right, right. You know, what was that sound? Well, that's <laughs> was it. Was that a five four five or a seven six two? Right. You know, so it's uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I've been wounded with shrapnel mm-hmm. uh, from a IED uh, in a, in, a, in an urban setting. Um, Never got my Purple Heart. The first sergeant never submitted my 
my casualty, my, my uh, when they call it individual casualty, whatever, I can still get it. I still know the people that were whatever, but be that as it may. So it's like, let, let me know because we're right by the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor. Oh yeah, up by us. And every year they say, "Hey, do you know someone that should, deserves a Purple Heart and hasn't gotten one yet?" And I'm always like, "No, I don't know any Korean War vets." I mean, after that, they seem like yeah. they kind of track that. But I, I will absolutely keep that in mind if next time they ask, because that'd be pretty dope if you want to come up and get a Purple yeah, Heart at I mean, the Purple I, Heart Hall of Honor. You know, I got, it's, it's, I got, you know, shrapnel up this arm. Um, we were out like in an urban setting, a place called uh, Ubedi. And uh, across the street, freaking, I, you know, was a, was a freaking, probably a big giant propane tank went off. Oh, wow. Blevy, yeah. And uh, I, uh, um, I remember, I, I didn't, I didn't feel it at first. And the corpsman and the staff sergeant I was with, that's platoon, I was with Fox Company, uh, First battalion, second Marines, or second battalion, first Marines, second battalion, first Marines. Um, guy named uh, he retired as a Marine gunner, uh, Mike Ventrone. He come running off, and goes, "Where were you hit? Where were you hit?" I go, and I, look, <laughs> and I see all his blood, and the corpsman's like, "You got hit!" And you know, he rolled up his sleeve, and you know, whatever. And uh, I wish I had kept it. The shrapnel eventually fell out in the shower. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were pretty deep. Yeah. You know, so it was just yeah. kind of like these weird. But so. Um, I wasn't part of the unit, and they had a first sergeant nobody really liked. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so, well, that's where it gets in this. And every, you know, he was supposed, yeah. to, you know, he was supposed to submit it, and the 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 uh, company commander, a guy who is now a full colonel named Ross, he had written it down in his little book. The company CO, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bob Altman, uh, he wrote it down. He knew it. In yeah. Fact, Bob Altman was. I was at Quantico at the museum. Um. And he was there. He became the head of uh, uh, the security, like MP unit at Quantico. And he was there with his family. And he recognized. He goes, "Hey," because um, he knew me as a gunnery sergeant. Now I was at warrant officer. He goes, "Hey, Fag." Huh. And he was like, "Did you ever get your combat action?" I go, "No." He goes, "How about your Purple Heart?" And I was like, "You remember that?" He goes, "Yeah." Oh wow! I go, "No, never got." It. He goes, "I'll do a statement for you." So I got, I got statements from the platoon sergeant, the company commander, and the battalion. CEO. We need to talk about that. But, That'll be interesting. Yeah. The corpsman was a guy named Doc Hauser, and he was a loner from RCT-2, Regimental Combat Team 2. He was a Navy reservist. He was on some special program where sailors could, but he's still in the Navy. He's, he's, he's down in Texas. It took a long time to find him. And I finally, they actually some of the guys in the unit said, hey, we found Doc Hauser. Because after the operation was over, he went. Yeah. And all, all they ever knew was Doc Hauser. Yeah, right. And so he remembered. He says, I remember. Yeah, when you got hit. You know? No. Wow. So I mean, it's just I got to pick up the three. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I got yeah. all. I have all the because I, I submitted the initial paperwork, with all the statements. Yeah. And and photographs that I took of the wounds, and then. No, that's something we and should. They, and we then, should I got stand a, touch then I got. Then I got a, you know, I got a message from the awards branch that said, "Oh, you need you need another eyewitness, somebody was right with you when it happened." Gotcha. I said, "Oh, all right, well, you know," <laughs> and then right. it's you know it's like other people like th that was in this Operation Steel Curtain, and a day later, like you know. Right, six guys right. were killed. Right. It, was right. just, it was just a real yeah. Something, and you know, I got because this, the, the company commander, he remember because he's like, "Well, you're leaving." I go, "I don't want to go." He goes, "Well, he goes, yeah." He told Doug, "You keep an eye. It gets infected or starts something." Yeah, right, 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 right. So, um, okay, yeah, you know, a little bit of this is <laughs> this is um, I, I'm 
I'm really pissed off because this this deserves double the length that we've been able to talk at least. But let me give it short shrift and at least say, right now, where are you at? What are you doing? What stuff should people know about? And how do you want? Like, do you care if people are reaching out and trying to look at your work? Like, what do you? What's your main line of effort? What's your main focus right now? Well, my main focus is to do landscape painting. That's my that's my dream. And also, I'm working on a novel. I've been working on it for a long time. And it's called The Boy Who Drew Soldiers. Right. And uh, it's it's a historical novel with all kinds of layers, of like just like me talking. And part of it is uh, one, of the th- it, one of the things I experienced was when you draw people, mm-hmm. you draw them in and you draw them out that word, that metaphorical word. Because one of the things when I was overseas and I'm sitting out there with my little tripod leather stool, guys start wandering over and looking over your shoulder and producing, you got a little crowd and all the other artists have the same experience and they're drawn to you. And then other times you sit down one-on-one with somebody and you start drawing them and they start telling you about how their girlfriend cheated on them or is what my wife doing. And you start drawing them out. And so it's uh, it's set in World War mm. One, and there's a lot more to it. The other thing is also, you know, I said I teach a course called Reportage Art, yeah. and the whole idea of home. The interesting thing, the word report, uh, you know, comes from Latin, re, R-E, portage, which means to bring back. You know, like when you portage a canoe mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Well, there is another word that comes exactly from the same root, reportage, rapport. Mm-hmm. And so you ask me what I like. It's like that that the art gives people a rapport they wouldn't normally have with war and warriors because there is yeah. nothing more stereotyped. Yeah. And you know as a veteran, yeah. Chris, what do veterans just cringe when people say to you? You're talking about thank you, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Yeah. It's like you just you, I mean, people are well meaning. Yeah. Yeah. But it if there's anything that shows the divide between military service, in particular being in a combat zone yeah. and the civilian world, it's when they say thank you for your service because most of the, everybody I know, including my wife, it's like, you just like, I mean, you go like, oh, well, you know, you're welcome. But you don't know what to say. Yeah. You yeah. don't know what to say because it's like, what do you think you're thanking me for? Right. You know, what stereotype, what do you think? You know, because... You know, with the Marine Corps in particular, it's like we're anti-intellectual, knuckle-dragging rock apes. Right, and right, right. love to eat, in particular, blue crowns. Um, but it's so much more than that. So how do you yeah, how yeah. do you get that, you know, you know, people see Full Metal Jacket umpteen times. How do you do that? And one of the things goes back in line with this, with the Marine Corps Combat Art Program, is that Marine Corps Combat Art Doctrine, or, or actually Civil Affairs, Public Affairs Doctrine, mm-hmm. they have a pub. And they have a mission statement right at the beginning. Like, what is public affairs meant to do? Unabashedly, two things. One, keep America aware of what its Marines are doing. Mm -hmm. Two, feed that ineffable relationship America has with Mm -hmm. its Marines. Mm -hmm. And that is a very poetic thing. Very poetic. It's like... If if one if you want to point to what is it that the Marine Corps does that the other branches like as you know the Army they're they're latest recruiting yeah 
yeah. has exploded in their face. Yeah. And their one last year with the freaking anime and oh, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, just yeah. did yeah. less than nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. less than nothing. If The Army has made the mistake of, like, when I was a Marine recruiter, I'm at the end of the hallway. So the Army guys, there's six recruiters, one Army Reserve recruiter, and they're NCOIC. And then there's the Navy office, which is almost always empty, and me. <laughs> right. And they would, the Army guy was, the Army NCOIC, I think his name, because his brother was a master sergeant, Hickor's Marine Corps, and they, they were twins, and they would go out to lunch together. And he would, he, he would his brother, the Marine, would come down and visit me, and then this the E7 would come down, and he'd poke his head in. And he would say, you know, Faye, if any of my recruiters said the stuff you say, we're all losing our careers and going to Leonardworth. Yeah, yeah. Because I would say to a kid, after I realized he was qualified, that he was what they call a, a, a you know a prospect. He was yeah. new work. Yeah, yeah. He was he was. I'm not going to be wasting my time. And I say this to you, Chris. What do Marines do? Kill, kill people. Yeah. 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 So you know that. And, and but we were trained to say that and look yeah. at the reaction. Yeah. To see their yeah. oh, I would put you in the Marine Corps so fast, Chris. <laughs> oh my God, it would yeah. all be crying. Yeah. He said, if I did that, but I said, there's no sense going anywhere else because yeah. You know, they need to understand you're going into a culture yeah. Yeah. that you don't have to like it, but you got to be willing to be trained if the time comes to do it. And we're going to do that at a very deep level. And the Marine Corps boot camp is only meant to do two things. One, to make your bladder the size of a freaking base of a, <laughs> of a basketball and to take away yeah. all flight impulses. Yeah. Flight is not an option. Yeah. You're going to stand there crawling in your own skin as a drill instructor is breathing fire and brimstone and, and spit and yesterday's lunch in your face yeah. and yeah. you're just going to take it even though inside you're going I must flee God, where's my mommy sweet yeah. Jesus give me brain cancer and then I'll go home and then you'll take it away and I'll be safe right so anyway so that's uh, you know the idea is a home rapport yeah. Yeah. you know what does art do um, all of that uh, the Marine Corps said that's, that's something that we have a value we don't have a lot of artists but as you know with, uh, you know, Captain Kennedy, mm. you know, and a couple of new guys that, that uh, as people in the Marine Corps itself got more aware. Yeah. Like me, they're out there. They're like, hey, I got this talent. I do it on the side. It's yeah. like, what do you mean I could do this as like yeah. sort of a, a serious gig? Right, right. There you go. All right. This is, this is, uh, no, listen, this is uh, such an injustice. We, we, to be continued, I'm telling you right now, yeah. I'm going to come back down here. We're going to do a part two at some point because the, uh, uh, there's so much more I want to know that we did not even get into. This has been a fucking pleasure, though. Thanks a million. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for coming down. That was, let's call it part one of the savage wonder of Mike Fay. Um, yeah. Kicking myself that we have so much more still to talk about. But I think that gives you a good taste of what's your appetite, hopefully, for more to follow. Just such a great time talking with him. And um, he and his wife, Janice, I should say, like you know, when I came down there, they put out a little spread of meat and cheese, which he said is like the classic Penn State tailgating, uh, I don't know, appetizer or whatever. And they like, he's like, yeah, this is, this is like all local to the area. Two kinds of like a Swiss cheese and a, I think it was a cheddar or something. Anyway, and then and then uh, this chopped, uh, what it was, salami or meat of some sort with like this real yellow mustard. All that's like local to the area. 
And it was badass and just really thoughtful and considerate of him. And because I had to race to get back to New York after the interview, uh, he gave it all to me. So I'm like there in the car, like I didn't have to stop and get food. I'm just eating it the whole way. Best road lunch I've ever had. Anyway, yeah, really good time. I look forward to more conversations with Mike in the dangerously near future. Okay, there's a ton of stuff going on at VetRep. I'm not going to bore you all with it now. Go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org, and check out everything going on at VetRep. We're starting up the parlor. Brand new 2023 parlor staged reading series happens. Well, it happened, started on April 1st, and it will continue just about every Saturday from now until mid-December. <clears throat> so if you're in the greater Cornwall, New York area, by all means, stop in, get a ticket to the parlor. It's a pay-what-you-can ticket, and you see a professionally cast you know, world-class performers and directors doing great comedies um, right there for you in a very small, intimate, crazy space. Um, so we have that going on. We've got Savage Wonderground. Three Strangers is our latest Savage Wonderground show. It is going on at the Principal Gallery in beautiful Old Town Alexandria on April 13th at 6 p.m. You do not want to miss this show. It stars, speaking of Marine Corps combat artists, it stars current Marine Corps resident artist Chris Battles, former Marine MP Dex, Logan Vath, a Navy veteran, and Charles McCaffrey, Navy veteran. We, it has poetry, music, spoken word, visual art. It is an incredible cornucopia of artistic talents all coming together to tell a narrative of the three strangers, the warrior, the thief, and the lover. It's it's just going to be a really fun night. The show is very short. It's only an hour long. We put out a grazing table. We give you a little champagne or whatever. It's just it's a really good time. Um, go to SavageWonder.com. Get your ticket. Again, that's SavageWonder.com. It's all one word, SavageWonder.com. Get your tickets there. Tickets are 20 bucks. We split the proceeds with the artists. And it's a chance to really make veteran art into something very cool, immersive, um, and doing it at the principal gallery, which is such a cool space. It's just a real, um, yeah, it's just an awesome time. We cannot wait for April 13th. Okay. Other stuff you guys should know. Uh, 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 I think that's it for the time being. Uh, we got, we got a ton of stuff going on. I'm just trying to pick my battles here and, uh, keep you focused on the most important things. I think we'll leave it here for right now. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. We'll see you next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. <laughs>